a word to the wise. We are an implicit podcast, tackling content with adult themes and entering spoiler territory if you aren't caught up with us. This is Cross. I'm PJ. And we are Words and Whiskey, a podcast for veteran and novice readers alike. We tackle fiction novels and love to talk about what we're drinking. You should think of us as your intoxicating weekly book club. <laughs> <laughs> My brain just stopped working for a second there. That's yes. inconvenient because we are going to talk for like several hours. <laughs> yeah, that's going to be a problem. Um, mostly going to be you, I think. So, Oh, well, that's a bummer. <laughs> It'll all be good. Um, I'm very excited today, Crossland. This is such a fun series. <laughs> this is such a fun book so far. I'm glad you're glad you're enjoying it. Just to bring you up to speed, today is our second episode talking about The Blade Itself by Joe Abercrombie. This week we're reading On the List Through Tea and Vengeance. That should get you through the end of part one is kind of the idea there. So that will get you there. I also want to take a moment right away here at the top to thank our two new patrons this week, Andy and Jaden. Thank you guys so much for supporting and backing the show. We appreciate it very much. Yeah. Very much. Very happy so to have part of the community. join join the Discord. I think I saw both of them did. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, it's going be, gonna to be fun. This is a couple yeah. weeks old at this point. We're recording ahead a little bit, so... Yeah, very, very excited to have you. And yeah, we're we're a little bit ahead just because of some various time offy things and trips and travel and stuff like that for working otherwise. So with that, PJ, how about that quick overview? Okay, if you say so. <laughs> Glockta spends time outside in a public courtyard surrounded by groups of people playing out light scenes of heartbreak and sabotage while meeting to discuss the assassinations he and his practicals previously discovered he settles into a new private torture compound and gives jazal some unwanted motivation jazal finds himself repulsed by the conventionally attractive elite members of the aristocracy comparing every feature physical and otherwise against Artie, who almost makes him lose composure while on duty at the meeting hall King makes an appearance to meet with the Northmen, and Jazal absentmindedly accepts a duel against the feared. After coming to the conclusion that he no longer wants to participate in the competition, he finds himself insulted and humiliated and decides instead to win the competition and prove Glockta and Artie wrong. Logan gets a long overdue bath, then joins in conversation with Baez, accepting a sword and descriptor as subtle from Baez before Bethod arrives. After set uh, after setting off with Baez and Kwai, he learns some more about the Magi and their teachings, then faces off against an old acquaintance. Dogman, a new perspective to us, and the rest of Logan's former crew reshuffle their chain of command after Logan's supposed death and successfully take down a dozen flatheads. Woohoo! That's a good little breakdown here. I just want to add in before we kind of talk about overall feelings. It is specifically the contest, just so we're aware, not just the competition, but it is Sorry. the contest with a big C. No, it's more. It's more for everyone else, and yeah, makes a sense. little bit for you. But it doesn't matter that you've said it. I mean, I I'm, keep forgetting. Like I, I sat it, down to write it, it these gets little it across. things. Yep. 
And the contest always slips my mind. It, competition is what takes its place almost every time. I we think talk it about communicates it. the idea, though. Yeah. So you know, as as it goes, not you know measuring those things against you. With that, PJ, overall, how'd you feel about this week? This week, I felt very in tune with the world building of of Joe Abercrombie. It, it felt. Very clean and obvious, I guess. I don't know. It, it just mm-hmm. felt like we got a lot of information without it feeling like just a dull dissemination of this is how the world works. You know, it, it was sure. yeah. very, very well constructed. Cool. Yeah. Just continuing to kind of build on that that sort of presence. Anything else from the from the side of our characters that you felt? No, nope, didn't feel anything about any of the characters. Cool, cool. <laughs> As anticipated. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Why are they even in here? Let's just set up a static camera and let us let us hear the world. Give me the compendium, Joe, <laughs> is what PJ is saying. <laughs> totally get it. All right. Cool. Well, with that, let's go into on the list. We begin with Glockta and another question of why he does this as he joins in with his practicals for a little breaking and entering action, starting with Willem Dan Rob's house. As they creep through the various houses, they begin to see a similar crime unfold in each of the three that we are presented with kind of in short form. The first being, you know, the serious one, the serious break in, but then the other two kind of matching suit and the rest following. The Mercers are being systematically murdered and put down to prevent them from being coerced into giving away any information. What do you make of of this sort of crime scene that we stumble into? I am. Hobble into, perhaps. I am here for a murder mystery. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I wasn't yeah. expecting this book to become one, but it seems like it is, and I'm I'm definitely excited about it. I've got some creeping conspiracy-brained ideas. I'm sure we'll talk about more of the specifics of that later. But, yeah. Yeah. I'm, my brain's... The cogs are turning. We're, we're getting the, places. The cogs are turning. The wheels have gone. Everything is rolling forward. Excellent. Great to hear. So with that, we kind of go to Frost, ever the funny man, suggests when stumbling into this crime scene that Poison is the death of the brutally murdered Rob. And obviously this is a joke because Frost is an intelligent character inside of this and is is making mention of that to kind of pull mm-hmm. pull out the rug from under us in, in kind of a fun way. But of course, we find this to not be the case quickly as they assess each of these deaths to as incredibly professional Obviously, there's some there's some faults here and there that they key into that lead them the direction that they go. But there's there's something there inside of these different murder scenes that brings us to attention quickly. That information is quickly relayed to Arch Lecter Salt, and it's noted that Ruse is the final card left to play here as someone inside of the Inquisition seems to have betrayed them and the information to the Mercers. I'm feeling quite suspicious of Salt. Feels feels pretty clean and coincidental that uh we've got the perfect bait held back from the prescribed punishment just in case uh and maybe mm-hmm. that's common um and Glockta doesn't know that um but maybe maybe salt just i don't know he's either very very clever which you'd have to be to be in that position anyway but it feels like he's playing a game and I don't know what the motivations of that game are yet, but 
I don't know. Sure. Glockta seems to yeah. kind of key into that also. He seems to not directly point to finger at Salt, but he seems to be asking himself some questions. Yeah, Glockta is, as he continues to be, definitely interested in everyone's motivations and why they're motivated to do the things that they do. Kind of regardless of whether or not like Salt is potentially at fault, he's like, but why is this such a point of interest outside of the fact that obviously we want to, you know, derail the Mercer so that you can have your hand on the closed council weighted a little bit heavier. There's just kind of a lot that kind of points in that direction, but there, there underlies or belays a question about sort of the general intents of people. And as Glockta said last week, this is what's, this is what's going to keep him interested in kicking for as long as he can solving this sort of situation. As they're sitting there on the boat, kind of having this conversation, what do you make of the details of the boat sinking with the various men as they're kind of driving by as this metaphor ending next to them as they're going along? Anything that you pull from it in relation to Glockta's story? I felt like this or this sort of scene that's playing out could relate in a couple different ways to, to really define what happens, I guess. The Drunken soldiers lose one of their members into the water. Mm. And as a result of that member kind of splashing them and, and antagonizing them from the water, the whole the whole boat capsizes and all of them get dumped in. So I could see this pointing towards the like being a stand in for the Guild of Mercers with Ruse being the first and then ultimately the rest of them or 10 of them on that list turning up murdered. But I think this could also be pointing towards the Inquisition itself, where whoever gave up that list of names to the assassin or to the Mercer Guild effectively sabotages the credibility of the rest of their cohort. So, I don't know. Don't know exactly what to make of it. I'm sure there's other things that I could be likening it to but that that's where my mind immediately goes are those two possibilities got it cool i i love that read into it it gives us kind of this idea of like and and like why something like that is put into the text right like it's not just an immediate funny that would be happening but in addition there's some sort of almost extra textual relevance that it feels like it's pointing to there so Mm -hmm. love love that little read how about the young man and this i mean the young man is the heartbreaker but the heartbreaker to the to the woman that he's chatting with on the beach yeah. or in the park this one yeah. i i have less of a read on but glockta himself directly compares himself to the man talking about heartbreak and stuff and how many how many and how women, he was a bit of heartbreaker yeah exactly yeah. it certainly feels like a metaphor beyond that though could be related to the yet upcoming conversation with Verus. It could be potential disillusionment with the Inquisition itself on Galacta's part. It could be something else entirely. <laughs> I'm not sure. All right. Dig that. That's that's an interesting read. I, I feel like they're, you know, again, some of these things are like predictions and it's like, how much how much can I read into this a little bit? And I feel like it definitely is also at the very least, like you were mentioning, a relation point for Glockta and to give us a little bit more background on sort of the way that he feels internally right or the way that he was before and see that there's this like warped insight to some degree from him and sort of this reflection on the past even as him and it makes him a little bit more empathetic i think in a way like 
A, wishing that his teeth were fixed, but like B, you know, uh, the where he stands as a result of of what happened to him and his sort of behavior in the past. So, yeah, I, I there's definitely a difference in personal disposition when he's confronted with just the general goings on of members of society versus when he's alone in his chambers or or with with his practicals he he only really relates to his old self when there's something relating to his old self like otherwise it seems like he's mostly moved past it and like that's that's in the past and no sense in addressing it but we haven't spent that much time with him in the grand scheme of things so i don't know if that's a fair read on the situation I mean, it's a it's a present read. So present read is a fair read. I, I do think that one of the things that I would bring up here too with Glockta is that he is kind of like an empire man through and through, right? This isn't something that we've discussed, but he actively supports the king and always has. Like he went from soldier to inquisitor. So like he didn't ever, his, his torture didn't necessarily dissuade him from kind of believing in, the union i mean maybe yeah. believing might be too strong of a word but like dissuade him into leaving the union or like backing out yeah you, you'd think a lot of people going through torture because of your association with a a country would be maybe a little bit hesitant to continue to feverishly support that country or fervently support yeah. that country disillusionment for sure you would anticipate he is disillusioned without a doubt but he's disillusioned to people more yeah. than he's disillusioned to the concept of empire or the union so right i think that's just an interesting kind of note on the whole especially as we see him reflect more and more on these different things he reflects in the emperor's prisons you know as a big part of this chapter in this week in general so mm-hmm we end the chapter with Veru's act asking for Glockta's help with Luthar, to which he agrees despite other inclinations or suggestions within his point of view. What do you what do you make of him him choosing to give Veru's even the time of day? Yeah, I'm simultaneously a little bit puzzled and frankly excited about the prospect of this section. Glockta doesn't really have a personal or professional reason to maintain this relationship with Veruz beyond just the fact that they both work for the king in some <laughs> capacity, which is a pretty, like, almost everyone that we interact with does, <laughs> you know? So mm-hmm. it, it's it's hard to make a case for why he would bother agreeing. Um, maybe he's still concerned with his outward appearance and standing within the noble class. Is there some sort of advantage that he can press within this connection is it something self-deprecating like he doesn't deserve the right to refuse an ask from his former fencing master i'm sure that later on in the story this will be a pretty prominent data point for some sort of motivation but i'm not sure what that specific connection is and what direction that that'll pull us yet yeah for now it's a little loosey-goosey i'd totally get that so that tracks makes sense but it does, to me. it does feel prominent like it, it feels important that he decides to make this connection despite his internal monologue 
Yeah, and, and there's a question here potentially of like, is it about helping Veruz or is it about his thoughts on Giselle and like where he believes he can go or should go even? I, I think we get we get a lot more into that a little bit later when he actually shows up. So we can definitely tackle that then and there. But it's interesting mm-hmm. to have it from Giselle's perspective as opposed to Glocktes as well. So you like don't even get a firm answer there as to, you know, sort of the why therein. Yeah. Cool. All right, with that, let's move forward to the next chapter, an offer and a gift. We start with an and forward that Marshall Veruz bellows at Giselle, practicing, you know, once again on this oak balance beam. And Veruz, with his twin steels balancing as a 60-year-old, is making an absolute fool of the younger man and leading to him to conclude that his likelihood of winning the contest is nigh zero if he's losing to this old man. And in the moment, Giselle is pretty disappointed in himself, imagining what his family will think and begins to understand even every everyone else's impressions of him. I like that we get this scene ahead of our scene with Glockta. Like, I, I know that's mm-hmm. it's clearly important, but I really do like that we get to understand Giselle's headspace, which Veru's clearly and correctly identifies it's i don't we get to see this sort of ebb and flow of confidence within jazal and definitely more ebb than flow right now yeah he came in very cocky very confident you know within the first week's readings for the most part and he has been slowly shaved down even though he is for the most part behaving according to plan now it seems from our perspective of him like he is it doesn't seem as though he's waking up hungover anymore and he's still getting the additional sort of tasks piled on. He's still expected to go swim an hour in the Agriant in the morning, a mile or two or what have you to, to kind of get him warmed up for the day. So yeah, there's a lot of like small tweaks that are, that are kind of hitting him. We then, after leaving that training and sort of the disappointment that comes from it, from Veru's, we then come to the meeting with Caspa and his cousin, Lady Aris Dan Caspa, who is pitched as, and I say pitched, like in loose quotations, as this high noble woman that he just has simply no eyes for. I mean, she's pitched as this sort of like perfect figure of nobility and he can't, he doesn't see it anymore. Yeah, I, <laughs> frankly, this made me smile. Yeah. And are you ready, Crossland? I'm going to use a term yeah. that we've used every book, every series. But I, th- I think I think I'm applying it. Oh, our boy, our, our boy, boy is smitten. Our boy, our boy is smitten. I think our boy Giselle. Giselle feels like our boy. It, Logan That's does fair. too, but for some reason, Logan feels too grizzled to be our boy. He's, he's manly man. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Giselle is our boy. <laughs> So, but he's smitten because every single point is entirely perfectly contrasted by Artie, you know, and I think he talks about it when we first meet Artie that like this is almost exactly what he would normally conventionally find attractive and it's poof, it's gone. It's just vanished. Yeah. In terms of what he thinks. Mm hmm. Other than the, yeah. like, he, he seems pretty consistent with the not loving the thoughtless, vapid conversation that people in this situation seem to exemplify. But physically, 
he he is done a 180 on his tastes in women. Yeah, he has fully, fully changed and sort of shaken himself, um, you know, in- inadvertently. Our boy has like shaken himself of sort of like societal expectations and all those things that we were kind of layering on to him as sort of like not even as sort of like as misogynistic or as like those things, those things haven't fully gone away, but at the very least he is, his internal tune is fully changed as he has continued to pine after her since meeting and since training and thinking about her, obviously like it is, it is omnipresent in the man's mind. So we then come to Jazal at the open council with his buddy Jalen Horm overlooking the whole proceeding. It seems to mostly be a formality of sorts based in the way that he describes the attendants and the replacements as well within this. I don't know if we would equate it to like the House of Commons, I would imagine, you know, in, in England or something equivalent therein. But yeah, yeah, it, it's I like I like that glimpse into the sort of foundation of the society. It's. Mm-hmm. A hierarchy of families. It's clearly sort of a feudal system of some sort with lords, but they're represented as families, but it's like a feudal hierarchy. It, the whole hall is set up much like our House of Representatives or Senate houses are with different sort of sections of people and their representations grouped together as they relate to each other and a hierarchy of like importance going towards the front. Yeah. House of Lords, House of Commons, whatever, whatever you want to call mm-hmm. it. Yeah. Sure. But yeah. I do, I do want to say Jalen Horm, I didn't comment on it last week, but that's a super fucking funny name. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> lieutenant jalen horm or whatever the hell jalen jalen captain no i think he's lieutenant but yeah very very funny name all right so proceeding as the proceedings do the lord chamberlain hoff continues to preside over said proceedings but this time in a much more formal manner than when he was addressed in private last week as we witnessed First, we start with Sand Dan Verms, representing the Lord Governor of Degoska, who is in a bit of a bind being across the peninsula from Adjoa and Mitterland and closest to the Gurkish Empire from the Union. It's the closest city on that side of things. It is resolved in the end, as we continue, that money won't be provided for from the king to handle this problem of depreciating assets in the form of the walls around the city themselves, as they've given an advantageous trade agreement to the Spicers Guild there, and they should consider rescinding that so that they can raise their taxes and tax them in other ways um, to pay for it. But the king resolves himself of handling that question or that on behalf of Hoff. And as for England, there will be a solution coming soon into the room to deal with that part of the problem and argument as well. Mm-hmm. Poor sandworm. <laughs> sandworm. <laughs> I felt bad for the old man. Verms is definitely used intentionally. <laughs> I think. But just a sad old man getting heckled and, and talked over, laughed at. Mm-hmm. He's going to snap at some point. And do what? Like physically have his back break? Well, I mean, <laughs> he is a god on, on the world Arrakis. of Dune. On, on Arrakis. Yes. <laughs> so... I don't know. He's got, he's got worshippers. 
worshippers. Sand Dan Verms <laughs> as worshippers. I'll keep that in mind. <laughs> <laughs> so following shortly thereafter, of course, we see the king walked in by his eight knights of the body as Guslav V makes his way towards the throne. He squawks a bit, opening his mouth and proving himself a fool relatively quickly. Shortly thereafter, the two Northmen from the day before enter the room, and White Eye Hansel, noted as having a blinded White Eye, comes with his offer and a gift. They discuss the offer first. Peace, an endless peace, if only they would give them England, as Mr. <laughs> Stephen Pacey puts it from the feared's mouth as he whispers, <laughs> and just a terrifying, horrifying howl and snarl as he continues to kind of portray that over the course of this chapter. And the feared is instantly terrifying. Everyone is afraid of this man, but no one is acting to try to stop him or restrain him in any way. It's like everyone is just frozen because they couldn't believe that this would be the outcome uh, that they would be presented with. Like they walked their king into the room with this man. Yeah, fuck. Totally tattooed in in writing or runes or something. Um, Yeah. Doesn't feel irrelevant. Feels like that's important. Uh... (laughs) As soon as Guslav the fifth, which is, uh, <laughs> God, I fucking love the names in this book. They're so good. <laughs> but as soon as he started talking, I, I understood mm-hmm. completely Salt's comment about the closed council having all the real power in the union. Um, mm-hmm. feels, feels like this is a fairly uh, tended to and inbred line in, uh, <laughs> I don't know about actually inbred, but it, I, I'm getting that vibe for some reason. Like, <laughs> yeah. just uh, just a dolt of a person who has power because his family had power, and like that's we just have to maintain that semblance of that that veil of power within the kingship in order to maintain the close council's actual power man yeah like Harold the great is out in the king's way and you're telling me this man is like that he this man had that ancestor you're kidding mm. has it from a couple different directions i'm sure there you go but when the king presented his excitement for that eternal peace i thought for sure he was just going to like immediately accept the prospect of giving up Angland. Like I mm. I thought that's where we were going with this. Like, oh no, this is going into chaos. Cause I think that'd be a really compelling story as well. Like I, I could see that being a very cool story being told of a of a large group of or a large section of land and the group of people within it suddenly being turned over into an enemy hand. Um but Either way, um, yeah, I, I, he didn't, to his credit, so, you know, one, one good kingly thing, keeping, keeping your power over the most land possible, I guess. Fascinating. Yeah. I mean, at the very least, he did his kingly duty, and I just, you know, this jowled individual <laughs> reminds me... <laughs> For whatever reason, this person of jowls reminds me of from the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy movie. The God, what what are the what are the names of the like bureaucrats? Mm. I've got 
I got the checker's guide right there. I can grab it and try to look through. No, no, I got it. Yeah. But it just reminds me of that guy from the movie. So they, they are the Vogons, but I'm, I'm trying to remember the specific guy, the lead Vogon, right? Um, from the movie and the way that his face kind of moves slowly mm. and he's got that pig jowled nose. I can't help, even though he's not described as having a pig nose, this man in my head resembles the Vogons. Yeah. Yep. Even with the fake wig, like the whole thing. It's just, it's the whole thing. Uh, Man, how much would it suck to be one of the one of the people that has to carry that dude everywhere? Yeah, yeah, because he's carried in on a palanquin, right? <clears throat> what a miserable job. Also, like, what a, what a shitty thing <laughs> that, that, like, humans did for other humans for a long time. Like, mm-hmm. Yeah, that, that just seems wild. I, recently in Blue-Eyed Samurai, I saw something similar and I was just like, you know seeing it depicted was a little bit different than like keeping that in my imagination. Generally I see it in like horse drawn carriages, but literally carting someone around like that because their feet are too holy to touch the ground or whatever is just a lot. It speaks to the culture of course, and that's important to, you know, recognize, but still. Yeah. Seems like a lot. So after declining the offer comes the gift a single duel to decide the war as opposed to the martial bloodshed that would occur and is a gift of their lives from Bethod to them. Fenris, in the middle of this conversation, the feared stabs himself through his tattooed arm, spilling his blood all over the ground. The terrifying man goes around the room and extends the offer, and Giselle, in this moment, can't help but open his mouth and say, well, I would, but I'm terribly busy this afternoon. Perhaps tomorrow? And Fenris is fucking horrifying as no one else even utters anything and just seems to like i I imagine like scooby-doo shake in their armor as he kind of points (laughs) around to everyone you know what i mean like yeah Yeah, totally what the fuck just (laughs) all oh man i i want to know i've got i've got some i've got some thoughts i want to know if this is Mm -hmm. like a nervous slip up like just a nervous sort of tick of his to to speak up and just say something in uncomfortable situations or if it's something something else like later on within this section we get some magical effects that affect the way that people think i don't think it's exactly the same thing as like what logan experiences with the golden tongue but i have a suspicion that someone is persuading persuading Jazal in this moment to to say this and i don't know if it's fenris himself or someone else in the room who i would point to as maybe being Artie. like i have got i've got my eyes on Artie right now as a potential manipulator of minds between this and and other sort of interactions between her and Jazal, but we'll see i'd be perfectly okay with like his interactions with Artie strictly being because of his uh, strickenness with her but i could also make a case for it being unnatural in in unnatural in nature i guess is where i was going with that and i that's a dumb way to say it but you know you know what i mean yeah, totally. I, I definitely get it. From that standpoint, are you okay with turning this into a little prediction? Totally. A little 
A little prediction? Okay. This is our prediction officially of the- This is our first prediction of the series. If you are new to us, I tend to make predictions. And whenever they become revealed, either uh, right or wrong, either I or Crossland drink for them. Yes. As a fun game, keeping us on our toes. And if it's a push, meaning that like, you know, we maybe shouldn't have called the prediction one way or another, we both drink. Yeah. So <laughs> nobody if gets it, off. If it's something us. that feels kind of in the middle, yeah, 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 yeah. Even if it's like a vague mistake, and you guys may think that like I agree to some silly things that PJ's like, this is a prediction, and I'm like, well, I'm gonna I'm gonna have to drink for that, aren't I? <laughs> like we're both going to have to. So mm. you know, from time to time that happens. But that's the first one for the series so far. So I appreciate that idea of magically being fucked with, and you know the the magic, as it were, is is a little bit more loosey goosey here. As we kind of come to understand it later. Yeah. So officially, and within the context too. of this prediction, he is magically being fucked with. And yep. I am claiming that Artie is the one fucking with him. Nice. All right. So, good good news. Good stuff. Off quickly puts the kibosh to that as far as the offer and the duel goes. And says, no, we'll not give you Angland. We're not going to do that for a duel. And basically takes over as as a king should be expected to in the moment, potentially. Obviously, we know that he's just a member of the Closed Council. But Blind Eye, White Eye Hounsel leaves saying, when it is time, we will send three signs and you will hear from us. And there's there's kind of a casual response of like, send 300 signs, if you will, that kind of like play it off as this sort of big joke but I, I i don't know if they saw what i saw with fenris getting stabbed through the arm and then bleeding while the knife was in him and then stopping bleeding when it was yeah. out of him mm-hmm. i wouldn't fuck around with that guy yeah no no that sounds bad uh um, no bad but they do have to one-up bias don't they bias sent one ahead of him they've got to send three three signs of some sort more mysterious better more mysterious <laughs> love that love that more so we leave and we end this scene as they leave the room on a moment of the king's just utter buffoonery as he doesn't as he asks when the northmen are coming at the end of that whole exchange <sighs> it's that's more concerning like, that doesn't come across necessarily as just ineptitude like there, there's something wrong with this man's brain. Uh, yeah. And I don't know what to <laughs> make of that. Yeah. 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 <clears throat> it's not great. It's all looking great for, you know, King Gooselov. Yeah. Imagine if social media were abound back then. People oh would, God! People like to call yeah. into question the uh, the mental state of their their leaders, don't they? Very true. Very <laughs> true. People all the time, everywhere, every which way. You know, it's one of the big things that's assessed frequently. I would say. Mm-hmm. All right. So moving forward from there, we come to the King of the Northmen. We return to Logan at Nine Fingers, who is happy to see that Kwai has recovered. He admits to having, like, not actually slept on the bed and, like, you know, not recovering as nicely as he would have wanted to internally, not being used to such, like, care and pam- pampering, you know, as as is traditional. Um, but they then move to have breakfast, and Logan talks about his experience with war, battles, and their ilk. 
And he sees his existence now as a sort of punishment for the bloodshed of his past as the Blood Nine, because he can't, and in his opinion, shouldn't be allowed to outrun it. He there there are a couple of quotes here that I just really love from him that I want to get in, you know, off the bat. One of them I think is is a massive one for, you know, I, I think like not I don't want to say the series at large, but just like a concept that surrounds Logan as sort of an important kind of thrumming heartbeat to his character. So first up, I've known little else. I've seen men killed for a word, for a look, for nothing at all. A woman tried woman tried to stab me once for killing her husband, and I threw her down a well. And that's far from the worst of it. Life used to be cheap as dirt to me. Deeper. This, yeah, this bit brings a lot of perspective to Logan's backstory. Um, I've known he was a warrior and grizzled, hardened, hardened, battle-tested man. But what I've been exposed to so far has been a fair man and someone, if we want to put a word on it, fairly honorable in the way that he like carries himself. And this introduces a dose of reality, some ambiguity to his qualities and makes his nicknames feel a lot more deserving, like Bloody Nine and what was there, there were there was another one I can't remember. Oh, of his nicknames? Yeah, I feel like there was another nickname. There was another one that was thrown in there that isn't often used. It was Bryn, right? The Bryn, like B R Y. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't remember who yeah. called him that. Black Toe does later. Yeah. So yeah, bloody nine mostly. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Coming back into it, yeah, bloody nine obviously used in addition to nine fingers and, and whatnot so mm. yeah the the secondary quote that i love here from him is blood gets you nothing but more blood it follows me now always like my shadow and like my shadow i can never be free of it i should never be free of it i've earned it i've deserved it i've sought it out such is my punishment so this quote clearly obviously like <laughs> the, the the crux of it is that Logan understands his reputation. He understands his past and seems to want to distance himself from it and understands that that's impossible. Like, will stick to him. But it seems like he's trying his best to rectify his, his past disposition in some way. I don't know. Yeah, he's he's making an attempt, and at the very least, I think through understanding. What I think is so fascinating about Logan is I think through understanding his attempt here is to own it, right? Like, he's not trying to walk away or lie to himself or anything like that. He doesn't believe in it to begin with because, I mean, to be frank and to quote himself, you have to be realistic about these kind of things, right? Like, as he constantly says and, like, reiterates, like, this is a, a very realist approach to what he is and who he is and how he's perceived. And so there are lots of things that he could change and maybe perhaps could will change, but it will never alter the core of his past. Cool. I do, so I with do that, just want to okay. bring up earlier on, what's the quote? You, you mentioned it. The woman? No. Blood gets you nothing but more blood feels very reminiscent mm-hmm. of death begets death begets death. It's, it's as though... Authors were inspired by other authors here. It's, it seems seems to be the case. And I mean, to, to be 
to be fair, I mean, we're, we're citing this kind of backwards for Pierce, but if we cite it the other way for Abercrombie, he was very inspired by Game of Thrones on the whole for a lot of this. So, okay. Not all of it, naturally, and it's not, no part of this feels like a copy-paste, but as far as inspiration goes, you know, like the whole well runs, you know, kind of chronologically with the releases and people's understandings and, you know, mm-hmm. people have similar influences, so... Yeah, blood gets you nothing but blood. And there's another quote later that is about the roots. <laughs> that obviously, like, there's there's some like natural understanding. I mean, even Marcus Aurelius has a quote has quotes about like digging up the roots and replacing them. But it's the opposite here, which makes me think that Pierce was like, "How can I invert these things and like attack the inverse?" So mm-hmm. anyway, not to not to speak too much to the the other influences, but cool. All right. With that, Baez returns and berates Kwai, Malachus Kwai, for not continuing his studies of Juven's principles of the art while he was sick and being carried on Logan's back half passed out, <laughs> and that he should really get on that. You know, like he's a little bit behind. <laughs> <laughs> Baez, the Magi, returning his focus to Logan, remarks that Bethod is coming and that he'll be here today, and he is setting on arming Logan with a weapon. Heading down into the dry cellars of the library, there is a small armory of weapons and armor, of course, and despite pitching random weapons to him by Baez, Logan is drawn to a simple, solid-looking sword that Baez claims was made by the master maker himself, Canadius. He gifts it to him for his good manners and for helping him with his task. I don't know if I believe that it was made by the master maker. I want to believe it, but I feel like... I feel like... Baez would have gone on a similar monologue about whatever weapon Logan was drawn to. Could that mean that they're all made by the Master Maker, though? Like, or none of them are. Do you think that this is an maybe, armory maybe of just Master, Master Maker, Maker tools? Makes makes vibes, you know. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I do I do want to at the very least say Master Maker here is used as a capitalized title that clearly implies Canadius. But okay. yeah, I, I understand. <laughs> it's just it's just vibes. It's nothing else. It's just the vibes. Okay. I understand. Right. I, I want to read the quote though that he goes on kind of as this diatribe because I think it's a lovely little speech, to be honest. Um, you know, we we just spent some time talking about some speeches inside of uh Lightbringer and the whole Red Rising series, but I think that this is a nice little thing that he goes on about the the sort of subtlety of a sword, right? And the specific reason that a sword is a really interesting choice for Logan. Um, so he says, Has it ever occurred to you, Master Nine Fingers, that a sword is different from other weapons? Axes and maces and so forth are lethal enough, but they hang on the belt like dung brutes. But a sword, a sword has a voice. Indeed, it has little to say, to be sure, but you need only put your hand on the hilt and begins to whisper in your enemy's ear. A gentle warning, a word of caution, do you hear it? And, I mean, it continues, and it's just lovely, of course, and I can skip a little bit in the middle there to just summarize that as a paraphrase, but lovely. Lovely little bit. I love your voice for the for bias. <laughs> It was not exactly. I, I was just giving it a different inflection than I was giving Logan in the quotes That's earlier. So fair, was, uh, but it's a little sum. We've been playing D anD D lately, and this this particular session we've been playing characters within our characters, which have different voices, which has been fun to play play around with. 
Yeah. Of of everyone, I just want to give you a compliment here. You and Leslie nail your sub accents. <laughs> Josh isn't trying one, and mine is as mixed up as my character. Yours is, is similar so. to what you just said, is why I bring it up. Yeah. Oh, funny, because I was not doing any sort of extending of vowels or anything like that intentionally. So that's neat. Okay, cool. Love it. Love it. I mean, yeah, love it. Love it. Different, but in the <laughs> in the realm. Hello, my name is Inigo Montoya. You killed my father. Prepare to die. Yeah, fair point. Uh, cool. Sorry, no, uh, no, it was it was good. It's good. Yeah this this scene with the sword is so ominous. In yeah, it's positively ominous, but it's ominous. It feels <laughs> yeah, it feels theatrical though. Like talking about him hearing hearing the sound from the sword as he holds it and as it like gets pulled out a little bit, and when it's when it's entirely unsheathed. I can just imagine the adaptation and and what that might look like of quick quick cuts to like really brief scenes of duels and of battles and and of of enemies of foes I don't know I I can just I can imagine how this will be constructed in in adaptation for the screen Mhm it's yeah, powerful I mean, it- it does, it does. And again, I'm reminded that, like, the reason they're starting with Bester Cold is because the blade itself is a lot of character work, right? <laughs> like, the reason they're doing that is because eventually they're going to come this direction, hopefully, provided people like it, and then tell this story. But yeah, I mean, and and you, this is like a scene that you don't want to skip, and you want to be able to spend the money to, like, really build and flesh out a lot of these things, because having a, like, Guy Ritchie-esque, like, quick flashback of, like, seeing people fall you know, to Logan at different points or even to this weapon at different points, either way, or a sword yeah. could be fascinating. So, yeah, I hadn't considered I, I that, pre- but you're, you're right. Like it would be entire scenes of, and, and giant battle scenes that are produced for like a half second cut. <laughs> like, yeah. You just, just do, so you do a quick flash, money. right? Like, <laughs> the pommel and then you cut really quickly to you know some man on the pommel standing in front of the horses maybe even you preempt and you show logan you know as you see as we see him later and then you cut to like the drawing and you see like some man charging forward with a with a sword like you've got all these like different kind of steps that you can give you know mm-hmm. Baez a little bit of credit for and, and kind of say yeah a deadly promise do you hear it yeah it's it's so good and part of the reason that I also think that this works really well is because I, I forget, I'm actually forgetting right now if it's here or if it's a bit later, but Baez duplicates a little bit of language that we had in an internal monologue with Nine Fingers before. Um, Which I wouldn't have thought that much about except for the scene with West where mm-hmm. his internal monologue was repeated back to him verbatim. And this, like, it, it is almost exactly word for word. And I'm trying, I'm racking my brain trying to remember exactly what he's talking about. Well, I, I know what he's talking about. I no, just no, forget exactly if here quote, or if it's later. I mean, oh, the, the quote itself was something along the lines of, um, you know, the knowing when to act and when to hold. Like, it's, it's that moment before violence and understanding when to, when to jump and when to hold. So it's, it's the same as when I think he and Kwai are on the horse and they're getting ambushed. It's that moment. 
where it's like, oh, do yeah, I jump? It's, yeah. No, it's it's the 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 person who attacks first often often strikes yes. last. Yes. Yep. Exactly. That's the quote, and that yeah. is what's repeated back to him. Yeah. Basically. Thank you. I couldn't remember specifically, but I'm like, I know that that's the initial moment, and it's quoted back to him here. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So. I would if if we hadn't got this gotten the scene with West previously, uh, where the same thing mm-hmm. happens to him, I wouldn't have put much thought into this. I would have chalked it up as an idiom in the zeitgeist. But I'm I'm thinking there's something. It may some, still some be brain an diddling happening. It could still be an idiom. It could be. Yeah, that's fair of sorts. You know. Logan seems to be composed of idioms, mostly internal, like mostly his own for the most part, but fair. Yeah. And, you know, he calls him subtle, which is why he ultimately gives him the sword and calls it the gift that it is to him, mm-hmm. which is fascinating to call Logan subtle. But can I think you, he is. I, I don't think bias is wrong. Can you see what I mean, though, that like I feel like this is something that bias could have done with any of the weapons? Oh, absolutely. I totally get it. Like, yeah. he could have picked up and explained the reason that an axe is superior. It's a workman's tool. You understand how to utilize it mm-hmm. as you would chop down a tree, you might chop down a man, legs first. Like, you can totally see where, like, any of these would spin into a direction that Baez could have spinned it. Yeah, I, yeah. I get it. Yeah. So. But I like and our that was subtle Logan. Down, right? Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, subtle yeah. Logan. Like, you can... Yeah. You can Make a case for any of the weapons within this armory of, oh, you're drawn to this for a very special reason. Yeah, it's very, it's very magi, right? Like, it's very much <laughs> like, oh, you could really stab a man with this one. Like, <laughs> as he picks up the, the, like, long pike or whatever, and he's like, God, mm-hmm. it's so heavy. <laughs> you could cut him in half if he was standing still. <laughs> it's like, All right, good. Goodbye, as we get it. It It is interesting, too, that Logan internally remarks that this is the first time that he's owned a proper weapon since he gave it up, basically leaving Bethod, having fled the mountains and whatnot to this point. Right. And far, far better to have a weapon and not want it than to want it and to not have it. You have to be realistic about these things. Once again, you have to be realistic about these things. Yeah. Man of idioms. Yeah. So we move back to the library and we see that most of the books here are all just one single copy of Juven's Principles of Art. This whole thing, all the white tomes that we've seen across the walls and have been described to us are all one book, <laughs> which then also gives us a little note into the suffering that Malachus Kwai has as to read the entirety of Juven's Principles of Art and understand it all as this massive tome and this requirement of anyone inside of the order to create a copy of it as well. But there is a second black book that Baez hides in his desk as Logan points it out and he says is best left alone. What do you so, make of the books? Oh man, I it feels selfish for Baez to keep all the copies of the books himself. Feels like that could be a like you've graduated and now you get to keep your own personal copy of Juven's Principles of Art. Well, do you, do you not think that every other of the 12 Magi have a copy of their own as a part of like an understudy or do you think this is just a just a bias thing? I mean, it, like Zacharis for instance, of whom the we The way know. I understood it is all of 
Baez's former apprentices have mm-hmm. produced a copy of the book. Yeah. And Baez has kept all of them. Oh, I don't think that that's it. I think that they keep their copies. Why does he have that like a hundred copies of it? Because it's all one book. Not that he... Oh, okay. Oh, all right. So my understanding I, okay. is that this is like a continuous encyclopedia tome that is massive. Like this whole library is just one book, meaning it's all one continuous stream, especially because we understand that... So like, they're all separate it's volumes like chapter one chapter book. two chapter okay. three yeah exactly I, yeah, the way yeah. That i was understood it is each of those bound your way copies. is also horrifying <laughs> like because that is because they a all have to produce of, their own right yeah. mm-hmm. so yeah. i thought i thought this is like the thesis like the final project of each apprentice is to yeah. recreate juven's principles and like he just has all of them from each of his mentors or mentees mentees um, yeah your way makes more sense i think in in critically i feel like that's the answer it. but i actually don't know <laughs> <laughs> that is that is a curious thought that i had not introduced to the equation i thought that it was i i think i believe personally that i do think that it is a full large encyclopedia because especially how specific the study they say is like you have to study the entire world to understand as we learn, you mm-hmm. know, a little bit later. So that's what makes me believe that it's like one extra long text, but yeah. that's what a firm answer. So my thoughts on the black book are a little bit different now. If, if what <laughs> you're positing is the truth of it, the way I was thinking was that, okay, so these are all the, like this, this bookshelf, this, this collection of identical white books and then one black book that's different and best left alone thinking, okay, maybe he has some twisted apprentice and this is what he submitted Mm. as opposed to, could it not be that in a different way? Like it could could be, be... it still, it still could be, but could that be like Juven's secret final tome, you know, like, could it be? Yeah. The real Juvens. Yeah. Maybe it's the original. Yeah, something like that. I don't everything know. else is a perpetuated lie. I don't know. Curious. But I was thinking it was just like, a, oh, this, this apprentice didn't take the lessons the way that we intended. And things got dark. Yeah. Okay. Cool. All right. There is a moment here, like a flash, where Baez is flipping over the book. He he consistently, over the course of this week, invites Logan to potentially be a, <laughs> an apprentice underneath him. I think be, because he believes that he might be tenacious enough to like handle it to some degree. But as a part of this, we we get this flash of the book being open, one of the principles of Juden's high art, and Logan seeing unintelligible symbols. Do you think that this means that Logan is illiterate, or do you have another read on that? If that's the case, there's some very intentional language from Joe Abercrombie obfuscating it. Because it like it's clear that Logan understands what books are, right? 
Like he understands mm-hmm. that books come in varying lengths and this book is very long. Mm-hmm. Like I can see that being a read on it, but it, it, it seems to me that, that this is just a different language or runic in nature. That not actual written language. He does mention that he's not much of a reader, which could add to that. But my thought is that even if Logan is illiterate, he'd still be able to to describe books as as books. You know, like it seems like he would understand what books are, even if he can't actually read them. And this feels different than that. Yeah, I mean, it could even speak to, like, this is a language that he doesn't understand. We don't have a complete context here, you know? Mm-hmm. I was just yeah. curious when, you know, if you yeah. read that as illiteracy or otherwise. But I I wouldn't be necessarily surprised or upset if it turns out that he's illiterate, but feels more than that in this instance. Okay. All right. So we then move... To our first proper meeting with Bethod, Kaurib, and Scale. And boy, is this a fun confrontation as Bias puts on airs when dealing with Scale and Kaurib in particular. He agrees at first to the proposal that's laid out by Bethod and crew, but admits that his agreeing was a lie as Bethod reveals his full plan to invade Angland. Kaurib just piles on him after he announces the lie, and the mage just becomes quiet and terrifying in that moment as he seemingly presses her against the frame of the door with some invisible force, rattling her bangles and everything else. What do you make of Baez, the confrontation, our introduction to Bathod, Kaurib scale, the whole the whole nine yards? This is a big one, but... I mean, I, my eyes are starting to be opened a bit to the power that we're dealing with within Baez. Uh, he, he's been relatively unassuming in his magical abilities up until this point, but his ability to mentally deflect the golden tongue, as it's described, as well as the, the physical power that he's exerting here is, is pretty eye-opening. On top of the magical abilities, though, he is intellectually smart as a whip. Or sharp as a whip. Right? Yeah. Sharp, sharp as a whip? That's dumb. Yep. That's a, that's a dumb... I know... I think that's right, but that's dumb. Whips are... It is. Not sharp. But he's able to dismantle the bluster presented, and he's not afraid at all to piss off Bethod. Bethod. Mm-hmm. It's just... He knows what he's got, and he's not one to be intimidated. Yeah, Baez is definitely not one to be intimidated, especially by this, as he calls her, I believe, like, painted <laughs> sorceress impersonator or something like that. Like, the, the hearing the golden voice, of which he does remark, is a is a magical trait. But there's there's a couple of different things that he kind of points to here. And, yeah, he becomes a sort of terrifying, terrifying presence. Bethod obviously hasn't, Bethod and Scale, I should say, obviously also have it out for the Bloody Nine and Logan here. What did you think about their interactions as far as that goes? Oh, it feels intentionally held back a little bit as far as details go. Like, we're we're going to find out soon 
what <laughs> what slights Logan committed against Bethod and Scale and what, what caused them to become adversaries. But at the moment, I feel like it's just important to know that like we used to work together and we don't anymore and things are tense. All right. Yeah, there's a lot going on there. There's also the four gifts of Baez. I'm curious on your thoughts surrounding these. He he states two of them very clearly. Sun in winter, a storm in summer, and two things you could have never known or never have known. Yeah. Did you have any thoughts on sort of the, the gifts that he granted, Bethod? So, seemingly, it was a deal struck in order to grab the power that Bethod currently holds. A storm in summer feels like maybe decimating the food production of an enemy. Um, on in winter feels like just a inability to conduct a, an assault in a time when it would normally be impossible to do so. And the other, the two things that you would never possibly know feels like what we're dealing with with the sorceress here of sort of sight and grinding upon enemies' movements, being able to uh, impossibly react to an incoming attack or something. I. Think it's it's tough to make the call on. Yeah, we're not like exposed to those... any any information beyond what we literally said out loud here. So I don't know. Yeah, yeah. I, I personally, I'm kind of amid amiss at like what I believe those different gifts of buying us to be. I part of me believes that are could they be his sons as like the two gifts that he could have never known? Um, hmm. Okay, you know, just because it's kind of out there as far as like. You know, concept and whatnot. I could see that. So, I think specifically mm-hmm. the fact that they're paired, but it could be other things. It could be you know accidental assassinations or otherwise that you know he had influence over. Magus is mysterious, of course, as to be expected, <laughs> mm-hmm. especially from Bias. So, after a threat to Bias and Logan, Bethod and his entourage leave. Bias then fires back a solid. So that went well. To close out the chapter and that portion. Hey, man. Grand scheme of things, they didn't die. They didn't get taken prisoner. Things did go well. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it, it seems like it did. It seems like it did. All right. With that, we're going to get into our drink segment here real quick just to explain what we're having as a cocktail today. So, PJ, I would love to hear what you're having on this fine evening. I produced a cocktail that I Afternoon. have titled Key of the High Arts. So Ooh. it is a we we've discussed this on previous episodes when constructing cocktails. It's fairly rare to find a cocktail that doesn't call for any citrus. So mm-hmm. I, I kind of wanted to test myself and try to do that. So I made a green tea-based cocktail. So it's two ounces of green tea along with two ounces of aquavit, 
three quarters of an ounce of simple syrup, just plain white sugar, simple syrup, half an ounce of ginger liqueur, and mm. a quarter ounce of green chartreuse, all shaken. Wow. Delicious. Very, very good. Yeah. I, I, I'm glad I shook it. Yeah. For incorporated probably better. Well, I, I think I could, I could have stirred it, but mm-hmm. I find shaking gets it much, much colder. And mm-hmm. when I first took a sip of it, I was really, really, really happy with it. And I think that's because of how cold I got it. So sure. how I would do this differently going forward. And this is, I'm already really liking our new format of having this drink section in the middle because we get to sort of feel out the, Taste it, the full yeah. body of the cocktail, the full life of the cocktail before talking about it. Not necessarily, not necessary to shake it, but um, you could stir it and I would actually serve it. Ah, uh, no, actually, here's what I would do. I would make it mm-hmm. like a fizz. Ooh. So I, I'd maybe add egg white and then serve it over. Ah, no. Egg white would be weird with it. So I, I'd serve it over ice with something sparkling. Okay. Uh, thin it out a little bit. It was great when it was really cold, but it, it warmed up pretty well very quickly. And um, then it got syrupy. So it feels like Got the it. base of a sparkling, larger format cocktail. So I, I, I go in a highball, adds add a spear of ice or something, and then um, some sparkling water to it. But it's herbal. It's I'd add more ginger too, something a little bit sharper on the ginger note. But overall, I really like the flavors and how they work together, and I'm very happy with that. Yummy. What are you having as your back half beer? Back half beer is something that I bought with great excitement and realized it was completely different than what I wanted. Mm. Still good, but it's double coffee cake from Portage Brewing Company. Crossan and I, one of our favorite drinks like that we share uh, historically as far as beers go is a beer called Banshee Cutter from Insight Brewing Company. It is a coffee blonde ale. Mm -hmm. It's... It's really good. It's really interesting. And Portage has one um, that's very similar called Coffee Cake. So I saw this at the liquor store, Double Coffee Cake. Dope. Let's give this a try. It's it's going to be more intense coffee, maybe an imperial blonde of some sort, or or even like almost like a Belgian golden strong or something yeah. instead of the blonde. It's not that. It is a coffee pastry stone. <laughs> Oh, wow. Yeah, so completely different than what I was looking for. Because I I realized I have been drinking a lot of IPAs. And when I'm not doing IPAs, I'm doing stouts. So I'm like, okay, Mm -hmm. I'll do do a blonde. Blonde, yeah. Kolsch. Yeah. Sounds great. Very cool. Nope, this is a stout again. (laughs) So. (laughs) um, Nice. But for, it's good. It's good. I like it. I just was hoping for a blonde. (laughs) So I was very surprised when I opened it up and it was black. (laughs) <laughs> and I'm like, oh no! <laughs> Had to look at the label. But Banshee Cutter, I just saw, is coming back. So yes, they they discontinued Yummy. it for a while, or rather, they made it a taproom exclusive for a little while. But um, yeah, and seasonal, and like they would pull it on and off, and yeah. they've never abandoned it. They just you know increased demand by removing it from circulation. 
Yeah, but apparently it is coming back to cans, so I'll have to be on the lookout for that. Yummy. I love Banshee Cutter. I think it's a great beer, as mentioned. Mm-hmm. One of my favorites. Crossland, what are you drinking today? So, PJ, I had a lovely cocktail that I named The Blood of the Feared. This was vaguely inspired by how to drink and the most recent episode on Dungeons and Dragons where he ran through some some potions and whatnot. He made an interesting cocktail that was a gin grenadine and a little bit of lime juice that I think was with aquavit for a healing potion, like a clarified lime juice. And he really loved it. So as opposed to aquavit, I went with, or sorry, he didn't use any gin in it. He just used aquavit. I wanted to play around with like a mezcal and something combination. So I took the back half of the health potion recipe that he had, which was the grenadine lime juice, and instead made it with uh, gin and mezcal. So hmm. I think that this gives like the herby note and a smoky note that I really liked for it. It, it you know, it reminded me in color when it came out of that sort of like diluted pink blood that might be like just like watered down in some way. I don't know. I, I just liked the image, the color and everything like that, especially as it pertains to this blood of the cold Northman. And so it tasted awesome. I wouldn't change anything. Perfect drink right out of the right out of the shaker for me at the very least for my flavor profile. Nice. Um, it was fantastic. So, yeah, really liked it. Big fan. With that, following that up, I am having as my back half beer a Brunswick beer and cider. Brunswick being, you know, Brunswick beer being the local thought. Sunny Point IPA. It's a it's a tasty little, I mean, fruity, straight up, pretty, pretty like normal but well executed IPA. A little bit on the hazy fruity side, but not entirely committing to that beat. If that makes sense. Okay. This would be a great beer in summer. It's a 6.1% for, for that side of things, too. So, Gotcha. With that, let's get into the back half of our chapters here. We've done three. We've got five to go. It might not seem like a halfway point, but realistically it is because some of these chapters are pretty short in the back half. So we start with a road between two dentists. We find ourselves back with Glockta, having caught the assassin and using a house near the water as this new workplace. It's described as an old merchant's place who wanted to be down by the docks. And all this checks out for the group of them as they proceed inside and explore the useful ruined building. There's even some like interesting payoff for Severard saying like he's like kind of like an accomplished businessman in this way. Like way to yeah. go. Like he bought it and he's loaning it out. Like there's there's something interesting there too. Yeah, I really appreciated the glimpse into Severard's life and his background yeah. throughout this scene. Great that he gets benefit from the... <laughs> From the ruse payment that he mm. that he took for himself, Glockta says to spend it on his wife or something like that. I will as soon as I find a wife. Yeah, this right. this feels more more in line with Severard. Mm-hmm. The building itself and the story of its placement in the undesirable area within the city makes for a really really cool setting, blended with very rich world building that I've come to expect from. Go Abercrombie so early in the season or in the series so far, so yeah, I I like this ruin of a palace within the underbelly of the city. Yeah, and in addition, it's got access to all of these different places as well. Like it's got this sort of like access to the CD underbelly through 
the sewers, if you can hold your breath long enough, as Frost says, you can go anywhere mm-hmm. without poking up for air all the way to the Agriant, which just seems like a crazy distance to be able to go, considering it gives a sense of scale to the city because they consider this far away from, you know, the Agriant, the river, as we understand it. So, yeah. It's neat. Mm-hmm. There's also a little quote here that I, I really appreciate as he's reflecting on Severard and he says, every man has his excuses and the more vile the man becomes, the more touching the story has to be. And we get this little, we get more, like you're saying, background on Severard, you know, his sort of upbringing and like being forced to live in this house, which is how he knew about knew about it to begin with as, you know, he lost his mom and whatnot. So, mm-hmm. yeah, it's, I liked Glockter, Glockta's. I still, in my mind, it's still Glockter. It'll take a moment. It'll take a minute. But I like Glockta's assessment of the more fucked up and upbringing, the more twisted of a of a person. No, or not the more twisted, but the more compelling of a story that you need to become a sympathetic character. I'm sorry, I've completely lost my train of thought. And I can't remember where I was going with this. <laughs> I I guess like my, my thought is, is like just speaking to the tragedy of each of these characters. Right. And there's sort of like cruelty that they are willing to put like he's Glockta is is kind of like constructing it backwards. Right. Like Glockta is saying effectively that like if you are a like mean person, it's because something terrible happened to you before. Right. Like you just have like a depth of pain that isn't understood mm-hmm. from your past. So that that's just an interesting perspective, especially as we're given an understanding of Severards. And obviously we know Glockta's. We kind of are beginning to get glimpses of Logan's even. Dissolve seems to mostly be in good shape. So, you know, for yeah. most of the characters, it's, and, it's a little and rough. Maybe that's but. why Glockta seems to have some ire directed towards Dissolve, you know, because he doesn't yeah. have the tragic backstory i don't know yeah he's got he's got no idea so it just all that leaves me asking is what happened to frost well something to take his tongue yeah i mean was it fully taken from him or is he just did he take it from himself what do you mean (laughs) no no no. as mentioned it's not that he's like missing half a tongue it's more that he is like mushed mouthed and like something he's not missing his tongue Oh, I took it as he was physically missing his tongue. PJ, we clarified this last week because I physically wanted to ensure that you didn't think that he was just missing his tongue. It's like it's frozen, like he's got nerve damage. Not that it's missing. So it's like it's mushing in his mouth in part because he can't move it fully. Gotcha. So. Yep. I remember us going through that distinction and that didn't that didn't stick. Yeah. 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 (laughs) He's, He's not missing, but it is like paralytic you know like half sort of half working as my understanding as it passes but okay as we continue to explore the building we pass by salem ruse the useful coward and we proceed to continue to inspect this lovely mansion looking at a painting depicting the master maker canadius as well as the dead body of juvens his many apprentices and two particular figures walking under the arms of the maker with the fire enshrouding him they talk about this being sort of like a duplicate of things. I, I'm curious what you make of the painting here in this mansion. I mean, beyond anything, it's a pretty unsettling scene to be exposed to as a as a torture subject. 
mm-hmm. within this room. I like that it's in a cheap approximation of a room within the king's palace. I think that makes for <laughs> a very funny story. But I have, I know there's something important within this scene that's depicted, and I just don't know. <laughs> I just don't know what it means yet. But I know it's important. I know it's relevant. <laughs> <laughs> and I know that I'm going to like look back on this and be like, oh, I'm so dumb. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's totally fine. You know, that that's that's acceptable. It's it's really just that I, I find it interesting that, again, Abercrombie masterfully blends this in. Right. Like this is we're obviously pointing it out because it's worth pointing to and pointing out because he does. But this you could totally glaze over this and be like, oh, well, that's like a neat painting. But like, why is that painting here? Why is it so important? It depicts two important people from history right and then also the 12 magi and then two or the 11 magi i should say and then two other people you know it it gives this sort of impression of interest i think by and large so Mm -hmm. yeah cool there's also within this like a little note that comes of course that is the practicals and this gift that they provide to glockta of the stool and the chair for him and it's pretty sweet for like a set of torturers that are, you know, shitheads. <laughs> it's very sweet. <laughs> yeah. It's, I mean, it's almost, it's, it's riding the line between boss and father figure, you know? Yeah, a little bit. I get that. So, I don't know. It's a, it's a very nice gesture from them. Yeah. I mean, there, there's nothing to say like they didn't need to get paid from the money that was stolen from ruse you know what i mean like they didn't need to receive a chunk of that change but the fact that they did they just appreciate that they know that glockta despite being you know a pain a shouter a little bit condescending at times is is you know looking out for them yeah (laughs) it is it's cute it's nice i i appreciate glockta treating the boys proper there's our boys yeah, I'm not. I'm not. I'm not strictly calling them our boys because they are pretty like cruel and mean people. <laughs> like, it feels it feels a little wrong <laughs> to tread that boundary. Yeah, so maybe. I'm just going to call them the boys. Distance They're ourselves a little bit. The boys. Yeah. The boys. Uh, so we then move to the Styrian assassin in his torture as Glockta tells the story of the road between two dentists as someone who could repair teeth and. Being from fleeting from the Gurkish Empire, of course, of where of which, you know, obviously he maybe learned to repair teeth. And then Glockta being at the other end of a similar treatment from the Empire, but removing teeth. And so there's this sort of dichotomy of extremes placed over the course of the city and the distance between these two dentists. And our Styrian fellow has a choice. It's noted that his teeth are garbage when his when he opens his mouth, and it seems like he's going to that Glockta is going to repeat the same torture that he received as to chiseling his teeth out of his mouth slowly onto this man for refusing to answer simple questions. Yeah. Teeth are one of the few scenarios where a fucked up version of it is better than no version of it at all. Like, <laughs> you know, like, I don't know. I, I think I'd prefer to have fucked up teeth than I would prefer to have nothing. So, but when, said, when you say fucked up, can you can you clarify? Just I mean, a like rotting and, there? And, and oh yes, 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 decaying, yeah. problematic right. teeth. Like if they're causing pain actively, yeah, it probably makes sense mm-hmm. to pull them. But I, I, I don't want to just pull them. I want to replace them. You know, like yeah. I mean, I've I've got a tooth that's being that is eventually going to be ripped out of my mouth in the next couple months to 
have a full tooth replaced, which is going to be fascinating. Can so, I do it? Absolutely not. Mm, You're not okay. allowed to do that. Well, um, but yeah, an old in old cavity sprung a leak. It's great. Mm. It's super fun. Wonderful. Yeah. <laughs> Sounds sounds delightful. Yeah, I'm sorry it's you're going through that. But Genuinely, no, it's fine. It's a okay. It just costs money. Yeah, yeah. That said, though, this is a terrifying, ominous threat within this fairly cool story that tells us that, like, maybe we were a little bit dumb in our assessment of Glockta last week. Like, oh yeah, just go get dentures. Like, what the fuck is he doing? Yeah. Right. Yeah. No, apparently that's been addressed and can't. He tried. Happen. <laughs> Which, what did they do to him that he can't get <laughs> dentures? You, you're totally right. There's this other question of, is he lying about this? Like, is, like, he seems to have a story hmm. for every occasion so as to enhance the torture. You know That's what I mean? Fair. Like, as we continue, is is he telling a full truth, or is he lying so as to lead them into understanding what's going to happen to them and the extent to which they will be punished? That's so a very, there, there's an interesting very dichotomy point. there. Like, is this real? And it, we have no reason to think <laughs> Glotka a liar. Glotka, I said Glotka there. I I, I reverse those two. You do Glotter. I got Glotka and Glotka. As I wrote it even in the script. So I, I do both. But yeah, I, I could see it being a another subtle layer onto the psychological torture of like, well, they're going to do this to my teeth and it's e- entirely irreversible beyond mm-hmm. just the immediate pain. The, the ongoing pain of it is uh, constant too. So I could see that. It doesn't strike me as a lie, but I don't know. Hmm. Yeah, there's there's definitely something there. I don't know. I don't know either. You know. Yeah. It's hmm. a, it's a question of goals and like, what are you willing to do to achieve your goals? Is he the dentist that uh, did this ends? to Glockta in the first point? No, first is place? that no, 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 no? He's a Styrian. Oh, the dentist on the other end of the yeah. alley. Oh, shit. Oh, that's interesting. Hmm. Okay. Interesting. And maybe that's why he can't He did say that he, he fled the him? Empire because he didn't want to be under, you know, that. But mm-hmm. fascinating. Because hmm. I could there's, imagine there's... Glockta not being, like, psychologically able to go to that dentist for repair if he was the one that did it to him in the first place. I mean, he might even have problems, you know, not not to like or just fully, anyone working on his teeth at all. Yeah, he could even have problem with problems with people that appear to be Gurkish. You know, we, we have no impression of like the sort of trauma or PTSD that it's been inflicted upon mm-hmm. Glockta as it relates to like the Gurkish people, potentially. Even. Yeah, the yeah. breadth and de- or the depth and breadth of. Yeah. The effect. Yeah, I, I'm curious to, to your mm. kind of larger point there. So, yeah, I, there's so much that you could pick apart um, inside of this, and it's it's a lovely little chapter. But they they begin to go in with that chisel. Frost, hold, Frost and Severard. Severard holds his body. Frost opens his mouth wide, and he tries to, you know, mumble a response. He's like, ah, 
Time to take these out. Also, he calls his teeth fucking awful, which to hear from Glock is pretty bad. <laughs> yeah, that's not. <laughs> like he's like, I'm doing you a favor, dude. <laughs> like, that's bad. Dude, what the fuck? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, for real. For real. Looking up at a mouth with half its teeth, commenting on tooth, how bad right? your teeth like, are. That's pretty yeah. fucking bad, man. Yeah. Oh, man. So, so nasty. So nasty. All right, with that, we move into the next chapter of Flatheads. We come to a pack of Northmen that we had long assumed dead from the perspective of the Dogman. I'm curious what you make of our Northmen friends here as they begin to pour in over the course of the beginning of this chapter. Just a recap so you have them all in your head. There's the Dogman. There's Tull Duru Thunderhead. There's Harding Grim. There's Black Dow. There's Fully the Weakest. And there's Rudd Three Trees. What do you make of our, our little band of merry men? First and foremost, I am constantly calling him Dogman instead of the Dogman, but I understand well, that I'm just, the I'm, is part of his name. So I apologize. But I would also to call him Dogman. The Dogman. No, I, I, I'm sorry, Puppy Boy, for <laughs> correctly <laughs> stating your name. It's like you're using a WWE wrestler's name and insulting <laughs> him on like the cam, and you're like pointing eyes, like I'm sorry, Puppy Boy, and yep. like <laughs> there we go. You know, I do hope we continue to see some of this perspective. He seems very level-headed as a character. It's our new POV. Yeah. Well, presume I, I. That's what I'm saying. Is I hope so. Yeah. I hope it's not just like a one and done or like once every. Oh right, right. Totally understand. Yeah. I I hope we get more of it. Is what mm-hmm. I'm saying. I guess. Same with West. We didn't get any West this week, and I I hope we get more West going forward as well. But. As a group, these characters present a very loud, gruff cohort, and mm-hmm. Logan seems to have been the glue that kept them together. So we've got we've got some turbulence within the ranks. Yeah, yeah. There's there's definitely some turbulence. I mean, I I think it's important a to point out that I think that Abercrombie does a masterful job here of introducing us to the idea of named men, because over the course of the book, up until this point, we've heard Northmen given like not surnames, but given like nicknames, basically, right? Mm-hmm. Like Logan Nine Fingers or the Bloody Nine. We've heard White Eye Hansel, right? Of whom clearly has like the name Hansel and might have had like a, a last name or a first name. But there there's this concept of named men that's kind of thrown around and then we we see a litany of them and logan even in his chapter with Baez that comes up here he's like leaving with a bunch of named men you know a couple of named men could do a lot of damage because they're sort of like a a fighting elite because they've earned those names there's something fascinating about that and i love Mm -hmm. that this is a group of strictly named men yeah yeah i agree my first thought on that when when he brought Mm -hmm. up like a couple of named men within the within this section of the army could do a lot. My my initial read on it, which eventually I kind of snapped out of, but I thought it meant like noblemen, like hmm. like titled. But who's to say that they aren't? Who's to so. say they aren't? That's true, but it feels less aristocratic and more earned. Yeah, meritocratic, right? Like yeah. they've they've earned it in in a meritocratic form. Yeah, yeah. the The name is earned, so definitely get that. That's that's a neat perspective. 
Any thoughts on any of the individual names and where you might think that they have came from? Do you find any weird? Do you find any cool? Are there anything you kind of want to like dig into more? Yeah, (laughs) they're all weird. We know that Grimm is named uh, because he barely ever talks. The weakest is not a great name to to hold as far as like striking fear into your enemies or yeah, yeah. or bolstering the the confidence of the army around you. So like mm-hmm. it doesn't seem like the name that you're given is necessarily a good thing, but given a name feels important. So like I sure. I'm, I'm curious where that comes into play <laughs> like where yeah. how you earn a name versus what the name is feels very lopsided sure yeah or asynchronous um, i think is the right way to put it yeah uh, it asymmetric right so it's like it's a little bit you know kind of off diagonally pressing in one direction or the other it's very interesting I, I think that like Black Dow in particular leaves a lot to be intrigued by his name. We're we're mm-hmm. given a little bit of context, but it's kind of brought into question even as far as the context goes. Like, did he kill a whole town? Like, what was the extent to which he, you know, how did he really earn the name Black is left in question. Yeah. There's Three another trees one. isn't addressed Sim- at all. No, yeah, not not addressed yeah. one, but <laughs> yeah. Similarly, going forward to one of the latest epi- or one of the latest chapters that we'll read this week mm-hmm. black toes his name because he almost like he got frostbite on all of his toes like that yeah <laughs> is it a good thing is it a bad thing it it feels like a bad thing in that sense but the, <laughs> yeah. it seems like your given name doesn't necessarily have anything to do with the fact that like your given name is based on something that has happened to you, but it is not necessarily mm-hmm. the reason the name was given to you. If that makes sense, mm-hmm. which is hard to grapple with intellectually within like, at least in my brain, but I'm, I'm trying to break that connection, I guess. Potentially. Yeah. Let's, let's, we'll just use like a different example. If you had a character that was named like a named man, I, I just want you to approach this and like try to break it down as you would approach it. Say you had a character that was named, you know, Crossland the Scaly. What what could that mean? Well, it's just you because you're a lizard person. Perfect. You know, and, yeah. and correct. <laughs> yeah, that is my named man name. That's the one that I've earned because mm-hmm. I'm. I am one of the lizard invaders, yes. Yeah. I mark low upon their number. You know, there are a lot of higher... I mean, we all hailed the Zuck, right? You know? Zuck mm. the toes of the Zuck. Continuing I, on. <laughs> Zuck the toes. <laughs> um, I, I think a, a very great way to relate this is like within... We've talked about this game several times, but Shadow of Mordor and Shadow of War. Yeah. Oh, um, yeah, totally. They all have names that are the captains, the the captains within Sauron's army have titles along with their name, which are not necessarily a, not necessarily good. 
or mm-hmm. not necessarily relevant to their fighting style. Oftentimes they are, but the informant, if they have a name yeah. like that, it's because they're elevated within the army. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Right. Like that, that whole nemesis system that we've talked about previously, which God damn it. Warner brothers, like of the fucking patent. It's a, it's a goddamn great idea. No one can mimic you and you aren't doing anything with it. You assholes to be yeah. frank. <laughs> If you're going to make a game, make one with it or don't make games. Yeah. Let go of the patent. Anyway. They have Warner Brothers has. No, it's Sony that has Spider-Man because I could see like I could see a superhero game being uh, something that could use like specifically Spider-Man. I could see see Spider-Man using the nemesis system. Spider-Man could work. I would go Superman because Superman would have like Kryptonians potentially invading that could have different titles and like different things. I know more about Spider-Man than I know about Superman, so that's why I Uh, went that way. Agreed. I I totally get it, but like, yeah, part of the issue with the Nemesis system is you have to have them like not be, you know, they have to exist, but they cannot be critical. (laughs) That's like the weird part. Right? They have all of DC, all of it. They do. Yeah, all DC. Oh, okay. I, yeah. I, I thought it was Sony. No, no, no. Sony owns uh, Marvel Spider-Man specifically. That's all that Sony owns gotcha. anymore. Oh, I, yeah. Fucking Disney owns the rest. I forget who, who, who who's yeah. got what. Hulk. Okay. Yeah, I I can Hulk see like Batman on loan from Columbia, but yeah. Batman with the Nemesis system. Right. Could be Yeah, totally. Absolutely. Yeah. Could definitely work. Sorry. You know, <laughs> no, it would have worked really well in the Suicide Squad game that came out. I mean, like, that would have been a great example of, like, re-implementing that kind of idea or system. I have not played it, but it have worked. Anyway, moving on. I think it's important to note as well, where we're talking about, like, named men, that the, the, the part of the way that the leadership is determined for this pack of, you know, Northmen and small band of named men is that they were all... Mostly, it seems, beaten by nine fingers one way or another to become this sort of crew. Like, he accrued them through victory in duels or battles or one way or another. They've, like, sworn subservience to him. And Three Trees in this moment has been appointed the second and his second. And that's, like, capitalized and made, like, a big deal. So they're going to head south as they follow his demands. This is also a moment of unrest that happens between the whole group as Dao almost begins to, like not really fight, but suggest that he should be the leader and begins to like kind of grit his teeth and throw, you know, throw some weight around. Yeah. I genuinely believed that Black Dow was going to leave the party within Mm. this chapter. Like it, it, the band feels fairly well destined to fall apart in some way. And I thought that's how it would have happened because he seems to be the one in opposition most against the rest of the party. But it's a great starting point of turbulence, to use a term we've already talked about, within the ranks, and maybe grow as a tribe going forward. Yeah, grows this, you know, fellowship of sorts. Mm-hmm. We get an excellent battle scene that happens here as a moment of preparation. They realize, of course, that they're surrounded by flatheads and that they have to do their best to take as many out. As the Northmen set themselves up to ambush this group of, I think, 12 or 16 flatheads. There's a number of them. I think it's it's a 12. And, yeah, Dogman and everyone has been informed to wait for the signal. 
But Dogman realizes shortly thereafter that he was never informed what the signal was, which leads to a fun sort of game of everyone sitting and waiting. And then out of the woods screams Black Dow chopping down a couple <laughs> in in brutal and effective, you know, movements in which a great fighting scene progresses. We've got Dogman of whom uses his bow. We've got this sort of assorted weaponry and fighting classes that are kind of shared between these different groups. It's quick, it's bloody, but it's so wonderfully executed from a prose and a visual mental perspective that the sorting, the sort of fighting prowess that these men have. For a couple different reasons, I'm going to bring up the fact that you and I played D&D last night. Um, yeah. One <laughs> is... That mentioned, I think privately, I don't remember if it was on air, that there's a fair bit of inspiration on Joe Abercrombie's part for characters from his personal tabletop role-playing game experiences. I would say specifically Logan is directly inspired by. Everyone else is sort of tangentially, but I think Logan and maybe even the culture, you could say, is kind of inspired by the barbarian. Yeah, that's Fair, but yeah. I, I guess my point is that yeah. um, he has experience with tabletop. He has experience with tabletop role playing games, and this feels like a battle scene that could have been plucked straight from a game session. Yeah, it, it felt very fun. All of the characters have different weapons and different skills, and they've all got some sort of synergistic energy amongst them. Um, even the weakest kills one yeah, you know exactly even he gets one so it, that was yeah that was a lot of fun yeah but it is it i'm is sure i'm sure our experience with D in the last 24 hours has something to do with my. i, I don't think that's entirely true i think it. that it's a good read on like the scene the moment the breakout because it does it gives as as they would say D a little bit from a combat perspective and it also feels like it's, you know, only seconds. This is not minutes of combat. This is not a mm-hmm. long time. This it's is very a fast. short burst. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Which, again, leads me to believe, like you're saying, that's closer to D&D. In addition, at the very end of the scene, <laughs> Rudd Three Trees, like, shouts at Black Dow for, like, you didn't wait for the fucking signal. And he's like, well, I didn't, I don't really know. I thought that that was the signal. I thought that, what? I, I heard you <laughs> scream, like, right? great. A misunderstanding yeah between them that doesn't seem to be like disobedience it doesn't seem disobedient it seems like he was genuinely waiting and thought that something happened but it leaves it to question a little bit yeah mm-hmm. yeah and they end sort of on a on an interesting note of what they should proceed next i mean they've agreed that they should continue to head southward but should they plan to maybe warn the people nearby that there's this massive forest infested with the shanker, the flatheads? This comment got me really, really thinking about the nature of the flatheads. Because we're only really exposed to them through Logan, his perspective, mm-hmm. and now Dogman's perspective. But there's no real mention of them from any of the other perspectives so far. So, like, are they not that well known as a threat? Are they starting to emerge and it hasn't reared its ugly head to most of society yet? Uh, They seem numerous. They talk about there being thousands of them. So, very clear that 
Game of Thrones was a an influence here with the Night King and the Army of hmm. the Dead being something that's a real threat, but not really known to the rest of the the world that we're dealing with. So. I, I'm curious um, on your thoughts on the the Shanka Shanker. There, it said it said a couple of different ways by Pacey, and I, it's S H A N K A, right? But he says Shanker kind of in the way that he comes off with it, like it gives it a little bit it's of like the a same with Glockter. With Glockter, yeah, he yeah. occasionally gets into Glockter every once in a while. If you listen real close, there's like that soft rolling at the end of it, but which is how you get to Glockter. But with the Shanka, what do you think they are? Like, what's your closest analogy that you have in your head to them? Like, you know, goblins, ogres, orcs. Like, where do you equivocate? Undead. Knolls. Yeah, they they strike me as undead. And potentially, we've got some sort of necromancer, a high-powered necromancer at the heart of this. But we're dealing with the sort of far reaches we don't have the necromancers direct influence we just are dealing with the sort of symptom of their existence do you think that that means that they're violating the first law or the second law directly the first probably the second as well (laughs) Mm, okay Mm. just curious more of more of a curiosity i would never make that a prediction but yeah yeah all right but they end with that plan to warn people nearby because they're trying to be accountable you know, help people out genuinely, because if nothing else, Dogman not being the leader, but being, you know, a leader of sorts just wants to help. And so he's pro that. And it seems like Rudd agrees. Right. All right. Cool. We move into then a short chapter called The Course of Lo- of True Love, of which I have so goddamn much to say about. <laughs> <laughs> and I think you do, too. Let's we'll, we'll move into this one. Uh, this returns to Jazal coming early in the morning to the fencing grounds. as He was instructed planning on sort of the swim, this arduous day of training early in the morning and isn't met by his usual instructor, Marshal Veruz, but is instead met by the charming grin of Sand Dan Glockta. This conversation is a fairly brutal one that really gets to the heart of things, both for Glockta's perspective of this entire idea and concept of what Jazal is chasing, but also for Jazal and the way that he actually feels about these things and relates to them one way or another. Like it it beats down this man on a psychological level, especially for for both of them. And Jazal's internal monologue about this being no different for him than a hand of cards at first, but he quickly folds that idea <laughs> as it proceeds. Yeah. It's pretty telling for me of Jazal's character. Seemingly, he, by default, approaches new people and new situations adversarially and like a game. Mm-hmm. Like Even after his interactions with Glockta here, as he's, as he's walking around the town, having left, he's mulling over the conversation not to try to make sense of what he was told or not trying to come to any sort of decision or intellectual like epiphany or anything like that like he's just trying to come up with responses to the things that Glockta said in the moment and what he could have said if he was a little bit more quick-witted um 
he he feels very immature in that sense. Yeah, immature is a good word to, you know, give our boy as we're referring to him because he does have those moments and he has those notes and then he hits moments of maturity and he's he's like battling with this difference between like meaning something and like fighting or working for something versus, you know, just kind of like the status quo by and large and like his existence prior to this point, which I think is the point of this chapter. This is a this is a shit or get off the pot chapter for Giselle on the whole. And Glockta, as a coach, does a great job making him shitter get off the pot. He asks the question very directly and assesses him very directly, especially as he repeatedly calls him a liar and directly calls him out because he's like, no, dude, you're full of shit. I torture people. He doesn't say it out loud, but like internally, you can imagine Glockta going through and being like, I torture people for a living, dude. I can read you like a like a, a fucking newspaper that someone's trying to sell me for a single mark like. Mm. no yeah yeah and what is clear is he has been tortured <laughs> extensively well yeah right i mean we know that he has but we know yeah. and he just all is not just all has just all knows that too right. yeah or would be it'd be difficult for him to not pick up on that i think mm-hmm. given his outward state yeah yeah totally I do want to give Giselle just a little bit more credit than I think either of us, or even me as I've like reread this and reapproached this, a little bit more credit here, kind of metatextually. Giselle seems to have been up until this point incredibly focused on the task at hand. He isn't waking up hungover anymore. He's not really trying to, at the very least, abide by the rules and the minimum standards. But that is much more than he was doing at the very beginning of this book. Like He is yeah. striving to complete the task, if not excel at the task. Right. So I I agree with you, but it's interesting that that's not said explicitly. You know, mm-hmm. like it's just an absence of commentary on him waking up hungover. It's an absence of the opposite, right? Like we yeah. should see him being sluggish here if he's hungover. You know, right? So I hope that's the case. I hope I hope he's actually taking it seriously, but I, I'm not seeing that necessarily. I don't know. If you're hungover every single day, I'm sure it, it becomes easy right. enough to kind of fake it. So I could, I could, un, I, like, I could see that being an argument for the idea that he's just carrying but he, on but the he way was that he has been. To but, remember the training yeah, and when it true. was, you know, that's like this point. is this yeah. is very much like a he's he's kind of in the shit of it now and he's accepted that to some degree. Yeah, that's fair. You know. But uh, he he kind of takes the opposite away from what we would expect from the conversation of uh, of Guacta and ultimately turns kind of away from this in the end. We'll get to that in a moment. But I also really appreciate the way that Guacta builds up Colum West, Major West's achievements in the contest and shows that hard work was his only way to any semblance of glory from a peasant's position. And it shows to me, at the very least, how much he really respects West and how much of a good man that kind of makes West by and large. Yeah, this was great to see. Hopefully, given Glockta's words mirrored by Jazal's feelings, this is something that will eventually stick with Jazal. Um, mm-hmm. some some amount of admiration and respect for Colin West instead of just straight up contempt for the idea of somebody not noble 
inhabited inhabiting West position. Like Giselle's in this weird position where he doesn't seem to have contempt for West himself, but doesn't really recognize the adversity that West had to overcome. Like it's discontinuous in a certain respect of, of uh, Giselle's upbringing and feelings on the sort of socioeconomic status of West, but mm-hmm. he he doesn't seem to hate West for holding the position, but he hates the idea that West could hold the position. If that makes sense, yeah, he he definitely is. I, I get I get what you're saying. He's at odds with it for sure. Um, he's not, you know, fully in. Mm-hmm. So I, I do definitely get it. And that's why I appreciate Glockta's converse perspective where he's like, you should appreciate like what he did to achieve and strive. Not only that from like a societal perspective, but also like he had everything to lose. You have nothing to lose, but you should still be fighting for the honor and the glory because you don't understand the benefit. And if I were you, that's what I would do. And that is, I don't want to say that Glockta is actively dishonest, but he's occluding of his intent a lot of the time when he speaks. This is one of the most honest scenes we've seen with Glockta so far, where he's like, if I were you, I would fucking do it, dude. Like, very straight yeah. up. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Unfortunately, Giselle takes the wrong message from that. Also true. And he walks, <laughs> yeah, he, he, he walks away, and to quote, Mr. Joey A, from his less than delightful interview, Giselle runs into a stranger, uh, of whom we quickly understand is Yoru Sulfur, of whom says that he must partake in the contest and that he's here to ta- partake and like have conversations that are outside of this. But he's he's very active. He's engaged. He's like, no, you must partake in the contest, sir. And that his master would be horrified if he knew that he wasn't going to be a part of that. I love how unhelpful Yoru is in this instance. <laughs> like it's great comic. I love relief. Yoru in general. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Jazal is in a very tumultuous state of mind, and this is obviously frustrating for him, not getting the answers that he's looking for when he's asking mm-hmm. directly, like who Yoru is. And yeah, who's your so master? Good. You know. So such a good answer. Yeah. Every time. Yeah, Yoru is is a fun one you know he's just kind of he's kind of like a ball of energy like he, he reminds me of like a golden lab made manifest into a person but just for bias like you know like mm-hmm. i don't know he's he's got that energy about him i i dig that it's kind of fun so following this moment with yoru we then move to a visit to the wests expecting to run into the major he instead runs into a drunk Artie. She's languishing on her own, locked in this apartment without friends, and really gives it to Giselle in a way that he was most definitely deserving. <laughs> or, like, mostly deserves. I don't know. I don't know that he deserved the full brunt of her wrath in, in this moment. You know, she wasn't necessarily scorned, but she was correct. He doesn't necessarily have the insight to know that he deserves it. Right. Right. Very true. Very true. But the Wests even had this secret bet on the man and whether or not he'd stick with it. Colin believing that he would and Artie believing that she that he wouldn't based on her initial impression, which is 
just so telling of their understanding yeah. of the different sides of their, you know, quote, relationship quote with each other. As he walks into, there's this wonderful moment where he asks, are you drunk? And she says, somewhat, but I'm mostly just bored. And he replies with, it's not even 10. And she says, can't I get bored before 10? And <laughs> just like a nice good yeah. response that's a very yeah, it's very clever witty clever response yeah um i really like when the I'm way bored, she rolls I get drunk. in general yeah uh we've had a long-standing rule that we forgot about last weekend or last week True. when we recorded which is where when there's drinking in the book there's drinking in real life so cheers to the wine cheers. being consumed within this scene there's two moments. I'm going to call her drinking beforehand and Giselle agreeing to drink. Yep. Okay. So I'm, going to, I'm going to require you to drink twice. This is also to make up for last week, mostly. But that's fair. There were a couple of moments last week, but yeah, we're just going to we'll, we'll call that handful. good. We'll call that good. Yeah. Yep. But on as, as far as it relates to Artie, how do you feel? Artie feels, I don't know, it, it's, it's interesting how she's interacting because Given some insight within this section, she seems like she feels trapped. But it, it like her character doesn't back up the idea that she could feel trapped in this sense of like Colum not wanting her to go back home after mm-hmm. the death of her father out of safety concerns. Like she doesn't feel like somebody that would be willing to just blindly listen to her brother in that sense. Or anyone, really. Like she feels very independent. So I don't know. Maybe she agrees, but is bucking against that assessment a little bit, but deep down knows it's right. I don't know. She feels a little tortured internally. Yeah, I would say more than a little tortured. She feels like she's balancing on some kind of knife's edge of of like political socialization that like she's rationalizing or trying to figure out like she feels above her station but also feels so limited by the proximity and access that she has that like it feels easier to return to the status quo when reality you know she should probably be here and she should be pushing for herself and as we know lady aris is like it that aris isn't a bad woman i'm not suggesting as such but like it feels like Artie could have more of a physical impact on on the rest of the world than someone like Aris, at the very yeah. least. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. It, it's a tough moment, you know. I, I do want to just bring up that, like, I love that West is our, like, little golden retriever boy here and that, like, really <laughs> believes in him because he's been he's witnessed the whole thing and he's seen him, like, fight to overcome these odds and, like, he's dueled with him and he's helped train and, like, he, he believes he's going to push through, you know, like, yeah, good man. That yeah. is pretty nice. Puts a lot of faith in him. Yeah. Love that here. Walking away from all of this, though, he comes away with his Giselle's solution. After all of these different confrontations, he decides that he is going to prove them wrong, that he's not going to quit. He's going to continue and win the damn contest and gains the sense of internal purpose. That just drives him forward. He just thinks at the very end, he's like, I've got enough time for a run yet. And then we assume he goes out and he runs. That'll teach him. Yeah. Me, <laughs> me winning the contest just like they wanted. That'll get him. That'll get him. <laughs> yeah. 
yeah getting him back although i is Artie so insidious insidious to like actually want him to win the contest you know what i mean like is that is she so pushing i, no. I give glotka or glotka the like sort of you know maybe the rationale but yeah i don't think that's Artie's position uh but yeah Giselle's reading into it that way yeah and it's not about winning the contest but um having the resolve to to follow through with your initial plans i guess yeah your promises and everything akin Mm -hmm. to that cool all right that's where we leave giselle for part one is he's resolved to win the contest as he's running he's leaving this nice ready to fucking go all right we head into our final glockta chapter of the week how dogs are trained which is boy oh boy <laughs> brutal brutal chapter title uh we visit glockta in a back alley with his practicals as they abduct goffred hornlack a senior mercer who is quickly abandoned by the three sailors who gave him birth in the harbor from westport and the loyalty of those westport sailors was immediately purchased with a small purse of coin it barely cost anything and severard even nails the bodyguard with an arrow to the eye inconspicuously dressed like not a practical but i think like kind of like a maiden like he's given this impression of like i don't know in my mind i just imagine him dressed as like a a like woman in a flowery gown in the alleyway wielding a crossbow <laughs> and comes out and shoots him in the eye. But it's obviously not exactly what it is, but that's how I imagine mm-hmm. him just being dressed so differently. Yeah. This scene, we also get the refrain from Glockta of the body bloated beyond recognition in the harbor. I like the sort of cold calculating inner monologue as he is assessing the situation before he calls out to yeah what's his name to hornlack yeah or to hornlack yeah i i do want to bring up i'm just curious on your thoughts here how do you feel about glockta going out and taking part in these things considering his condition like how do you do man like yeah he needs it he needs the the full the rush yeah the rush of it is one thing the not feeling useless or confined is another thing mm-hmm. he recognizes i think given previous inner monologues that like he is absolutely slowing his practicals down by insisting on being a participant in these events but i i think it makes for a healthier character if we can call him that for him to be able to participate yeah i i think that it, he is all the healthier for like going that direction but like you know the part of me is like uh, you could probably trust the practicals to do the work for you and not do it as we've we've noticed over the course of the series they aren't dumb they're they're pretty smart even though frost you know gives the impression although we find that to mostly be humor not like intended humor not like he's actually a dumb person. Right. As it relates. So, yeah. It's it's interesting. So, Hornlack is brought back to the house and stripped butt naked and pleads with Glockta, offering anything at any price because every man has a price, especially from a Lord of Mercers, this merchant 
obviously agrees with this and preaches it and says, please let me go, you know, whatever you can do. And Glockta retorts, I want my teeth back. I want my leg back. I want my life back. And the man knows that he can't purchase his way out of this one. Glockta is not and likely will never be for sale. He would be if we can find a time traveler or a very, <laughs> very advanced doctor. I think we could I think we could buy him with Yeah, we could we could buy Glockta. He's he set his price. His price is not easy to obtain, but maybe not impossible in a fantasy book. <laughs> Do you think that we'd see like the restoration of Glockta as like a course of the story or I could see it from Baez in some hmm. weird scenario where they cross paths and need something from each other. Sure. Okay. But I don't think that'll happen. I don't believe All it'll right. happen, but I could I could see a path where it Yeah, could. you can imagine it. You can yeah. you can imagine it. I I definitely get that. Okay. With that we move at the very end of this chapter where our favorite torturer then proceeds to tell another story about how his mother trains dogs and how repetition is used to train them and how he's going to train Hornlack the same way, starting with simple questions. He I mean, repeats it, his name. It, it's repu- repetition, but it's also the whip, right? Like, yeah, there's a fist, you know, there's, yeah, there's like, it's, there's no carrot here. There's <laughs> just stick. There's just thick. Yeah. yeah. But he repeats his name, who he works for, and who he's under, and whether or not he's a hired assassin to kill. He hired an assassin to kill 10 mercers by Coster Dan Colt, uh, to which he pauses and then proceeds. We assume this repeats until he's nothing more than a slavering, whimpering pup of a man by the end of this. I'm curious as to what you think in terms of, like, the torture here, of course, that's on display, where we think Glockta is going, you know, as it, as it proceeds forward into part two. Um, and then, you know, kind of just your your thoughts on this method, maybe even. Yeah, I mean, there, there's truly a beauty in this method, which has been recognized by Glockta. It's been recognized by the U.S. government. Um, and that's if you torture someone enough, it doesn't matter if they actually tell the truth. They will say whatever you want them to say. It's really neat. <laughs> it's a really cool. It's a really cool facet of torture. That can be exploited. So, you know, feel very good living within a society where this exists. Yeah, that was a terrifying you know, <laughs> countenance that you just gave that I was I was not like anticipating. But you know what? You're you're right. I mean, there's truth to a lot of what Abercrombie is trying to put on the page here. This is not none of this is sugarcoated. None of this is, you know, by no intention am I trying to slam Brandon Sanderson in in saying this but like you would see none of this in a sanderson book because it is too real <laughs> and and like living in that fantasy is not a bad thing it's just it's a different choice it's a different thing mm-hmm. so from a writer's perspective and yeah i mean they nail him they nail him in the stomach until he kind of gets the message right and continues to repeat it until he does a bear repeating now a core question for you here is, do you think that he was the man who did the thing? Or is he just the man that they can frame? I believe, so this, this is, I'm tying it back to a previous comment yeah. that I made. 
there is a common through line through all of this. And that is Arch Lecter Salt. And if Arch Lecter Salt is for some reason the one pulling the strings on all the Mercers getting murdered, he's also potentially the one directing this assassin to come for Ruse. Doesn't necessarily mean that it's the same assassin that was sent for all of the others. Like, mm, whatever, whatever that nefarious reason could have been, if that's certain, yeah. like, if that's actually the case, like I'm positing, he is still in control of this situation. I get it. I get it. I, I see what you're playing at. So there's, there's like a larger machination here to some degree. At first, mm-hmm. I was like, but PJ, the evidence says otherwise. But what you're suggesting is, is that they knew, like, this is. It's as though Salt was walking the logical path and killing all the people that would logically be said next. And then Glotka's, Glotka's very intelligent bait solves that problem. But, but that bait is also set by Ruse. The, yeah. The, or not the, by Ruse, well, by, uh, by Salt. So, like, Salt is okay, at the center so of logically everything. Leads. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. Potentially. If there's but but he's also happening. the only one that has to gain with the end result of this, right? Like he is, yeah. I, I'm regardless. I'm he's operating. Gaining. I'm operating on the on the idea that there's something that we're missing, and he has something to gain beyond what outside we of be- the close seat. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Got it. Got it. Okay. Got it. Because I was like, regardless. I mean, like this getting someone benefits him and he that's what they were trying to do is just get someone that would admit to the mm-hmm. crime or at the, yeah admit to it not that they did it but admit to it which i think is an important clarification here with the inquisition right. but yeah hmm. okay so i don't i don't have a reason for that to be the case but but you're um, skeptical of salt and i am skeptical of salt and i think he could manipulate this scenario well enough okay cool all right that brings us to our final chapter of the week he and vengeance what a good name you know like what a good chapter name chapter title it's very direct <laughs> with with what happens although vengeance perhaps perhaps less so because is any part of this chapter actually vengeance no but it talks about vengeance it does it does discuss the concept though fair enough and there's sense. there's an argument that killing blackfoot could be or black toe could be yeah. could be seen as vengeance because they were former adversaries yeah i i guess like my my best counterpoint there in my head would be that the vengeance is more from black toe's side of things because logan is not seeking vengeance as a part True. of this right like he's black toe is the one kind of pushing for it maybe on a personal level although it doesn't even seem personal you know to yeah. him at best best case but i would i would pin vengeance on black toe before i'd pin it on logan myself I agree. all right so we open with a remark from bias to logan about the nature of the countryside and how they see it differently and how logan believes they need to flee across the white flow as as far as like this general sort of philosophizing goes about the countryside Bias says that it's beautiful, but it's hard. It's been like forged in this cold weather and everything else. And Logan instead can't help but see sort of this insight about battle in the way that it would be taken here. Like he sees everything like a potential battlefield 
and that's unavoidable to him at this point in his life as he thinks mm-hmm. yeah we we get some personal philosophy not to use a term that you used already looking at it philosophically uh from logan's perspective um about fear specifically mm-hmm. and fear being the friend of the hunted and uh fearless being a trait of the dead um Ooh. so i i found that striking and relevant all right excellent there's also like deeper notes about magic here that happen throughout this little component um this little section it's it's again like as opposed to stephen king of which we read recently where stephen king will do a chapter and then he does like those line breaks between things you know you just get like a double paragraph space and you know that it's a new scene right stephen king will drop like a a triple period between things or like a line that like separates the idea um if you're reading it physically but we haven't hit that point quite yet before we get to that We've got Baez also relaying a little bit of a conversation about Calrib and how she's actually more legit than he pretended in the moment that the utmost north was not just a commentary, but was actually fairly real and that she has the long eye, which is an old and effective trick, as he calls it. Yeah, magic within this section feels much more important defined not quite but like more defined or like mm-hmm. given you know physicality yeah. or reality we we also get descriptions from Baez about wards painted on the walls Placed by of, juvens yeah. yeah saying basically saying that anyone with violence in their intention will be unable to find the library itself so that's that's pretty fucking cool to me, that's very Tolkien. That is like, oh yeah, that is something straight out of the the Elven playbook, right? Mm. Yeah, something very mystical and and tricky. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's it's clever, and there's there's a lot of interesting magic here, and I I love the admittance from Baez specifically about Calrib. Like, it's just like this little bit of like, yeah. I downplayed that. <laughs> it's just sort of like this this moment of fragility kind of for himself where he's like, I was definitely just being intimidating more or less. Right. We then move uh, to the assessment of Kwai's skills at naming plants, fauna, and mushrooms, of which Logan has become frustrated with, as well as specifically frustrated with these teachings surrounding it and gives in to helping the poor young apprentice with a specific fungi I believe it's crow's foot as he calls it within we are explained the fundamentals of, of the focuses of each of the 12 studied magi and how they deepened their knowledge in particular areas in Baez's case he chose fire force and will as sort of areas of expertise within them i mean i'm not surprised that Baez was unconvinced by Kwai's yeah, no, ability I'm not to either, come up with like, these answers on his own. Right. After Logan. He's Logan embarrassingly bad as far as an apprentice goes. Like, he's shockingly awful. Yeah. It's, it's not great. But he hasn't been kicked out yet. So, and seemingly Baez has had a handful of him. Like, he's had a bunch of apprentices in the past. So, my take on it is that if he hasn't been kicked out yet, he's not actually doing that bad. <laughs> I don't know. 
he's learning, you know, he's so learning. it's a lifelong journey to learn and even bias himself. So yeah. they're like, you have to continue. So, um, yeah. Bias talks about the parallel between knowledge and power within mm-hmm. this section. And I'm, I'm coming to terms with the fact that I'm not going to learn about the mechanics of the magic system. We talked about it at length. So I'm not going to like re reopen that line of conversation, but like I do appreciate that we're getting some sort of mechanic, even if it's very nebulous at best, you know, like more knowledge means more power and kind of latch onto that. Sort of. And we do get some pretty direct rules that we'll talk about here in a moment. Yeah, and there there are true. some things, but we do not have a mage's perspective in this story. There's no, it's not directly given to us. So it's right. left a little bit more mystical thus far. Although we do see some obvious trade-offs of ability and cost in this chapter as well. So there's, there's it's it's not as though it doesn't exist. It's just that we don't have the answer as to how it functions. Right. There's this wonderful quote that comes from the beginning of the intro to the principles of art by Juvens that is recited by Kwai here as we talk about this idea of like seeking knowledge. And it just I, I think that it's so important to the fundamentals of art as it's referred to. If a man seeks to change the world, he should first understand it. The smith learns the way of the metals, the carpenter, the ways of the woods or their work will be of little worth. Base magic is wild and dangerous, for it comes from the other side, and to draw from the world below is fraught with peril. The magus tempers magic with knowledge and thus produces high art, but like smith or carpenter, he should only seek to change that which he understands. With each thing he learns, his power is increased. So so must the magus strive to learn all, to understand the world entire. The tree is only as strong as its root, and knowledge is the root of power. That is the first line of that book, right? I think. Yeah, first several lines as first several first yeah first first entry, I guess, or whatever you want to call it. Right, kicks off pretty pretty intense. (laughs) Yeah, there's no preamble to this text i guess author's note the shit sucks (laughs) (laughs) juven's out (laughs) but yeah no this is to your to your point yes there is a lot here um that speaks to the effect of art and i i find it fascinating that the magic in this world is referred to as art with a capital a because Mm -hmm. There is a strong argument here that he is not only talking about art in the sense of magic, but that art itself requires some refinement and knowledge and understanding of the world in order to produce it in some facet. You can't just generate it from nothing. You generate it from an understanding, which is strong intention here. And I feel like more relevant now than when this book was written. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, without getting into the the entire conversation about AI, which was not immediately what I was thinking. But, like, the in- intent is important. Intent is direction. Intent is everything. Mm-hmm. And, and knowledge of the world and an understanding of things is 
I mean, we we had and we enjoy art because of the interpretation of the thing. We enjoy doing this because we get to spin our own perspectives and like talk about it and like walk through things in the way that only we could perceive them or the way that we think about them in the way that we formatted them. So, yeah, I the value of art is wide and appreciable in different contexts. But then comes the explanation of the two laws. The first law, as repeated by Logan, is it is forbidden to speak with devils. Am I right? And Baez retorts, it is forbidden to touch the other side direct. The first law must apply to all without exception, as must the second law, which reads, it is forbidden to eat the flesh of men. And I'm so curious as to what you think of the first law, the title of this entire series of trilogy, this, I should say, the title of this trilogy, as well as your thoughts on the second law. So, first law, making the, the distinction between speaking with devils and touching the other side direct, I think is an important one. I don't know what the distinction is. I don't know what the, what, it, but it, it feels important that that distinction is made. As far as the second law goes, though, we don't get really an answer. We don't get any sort of insight into it, but it feels to me like Logan may have broken that. Hmm. Um, I could see it having happened out of desperation. Like he, he strikes me as the kind of person who has had very, very, very desperate situations pop up, which haunt mm-hmm. him are necessary like i i I could see it i don't know okay like there are situations in real life where that is a necessary thing to do to survive so for it to be a a universal law is because it's cited as one that all men must obey both of these are yeah both of them are Right, and this one, this one feels much more situational than the first one does. Yeah, there. Not not only that, I I I'm interested in your your further perspective therein of like Logan in relation to the laws, and maybe even other characters in the relation to the laws. But I almost see this as like a little bit of fight clubbiness, you know? Like first law, first first rule is don't talk about fight club. Second rule is like don't talk about fight club. Is eating flesh the way to communicate with the other side? Is there like a larger question therein? Interesting. That like, That's a good point. It, is there something else? Like it, it begs the the two laws themselves beg so many questions. Are there more laws? Uh, like, do they like, relate to each other in any context? In what ways do these facilitate magic? Actually, because we don't really get it even from these first two laws. Yeah, I like that read on it. Like interacting with the other side requires the eating of flesh. So we're going to ban the eating of flesh without necessarily directly making that connection or something like that. It might. I mean, that's not by no means am I suggesting or trying to suggest that there is a foolproof answer. But there are a number of questions that these that this dichotomy of laws suggests. And it suggests a third law or a, a 19th law, you know, that could be like squirrels are bad. There's there's so much more context that we're you missing won't here. get me arguing otherwise. <laughs> Fuck squirrels. 
Uh, did you have any other thoughts as it pertains to the first law? Or the second not law? directly. I, I'm okay. Not direct with the other side. More. Yeah. I, my joke was good. I I'm don't have, he, right, that was, I don't have yeah. enough information to make a solid, uh, claim on anything within this Informed context. Claim. Okay. That's all good. Cool. So moving on from those laws over T that Logan claims smells of feet. We get the story behind Logan and Bethod and a bit more about his thoughts and the history of his own name, his nickname, and what he's seeking these days and how knowledge as the root of power has only left him off for the worse. And so he doesn't want to know what Baez has planned for him as Baez offers that information and is forthcoming with it because he believes it to be dangerous to his own health and existence. Yeah, this leads... To some great compliments from Baez on Logan's uniqueness in his outlook and his, the way that he carries himself, flexing different personality traits whenever they're called for, but knowing when not to, when they're not called for. Yeah, it's still, still similar to the sword thing. I like what's being presented. But I could see it being soulless, I guess. Just just compliments for the sake of getting him on by his side, feeling like he's being complimented at his core. I, I don't know. I don't know the way to put it. But I could see it being theatrical rather than truthful or mystical. Rather than serious. Yeah, sure. I definitely get that. There's a, a wonderful quote that comes in here, too, from Logan that says, Vengeance can feel fine, but it's a luxury. It doesn't feel your belly or keep the rain off. And, I mean, he he's going into this whole diatribe, so I'm, I'm taking a snippet of that. But it's, we've talked about vengeance as a concept in a number of other series and pieces of media that we've read. I mean, I think in particular, we tackle it at a decent length in the two Castlevania episodes that we did. But like I, th- I think that this is just a great quote that summarizes the idea of vengeance. It is a luxury. Retribution is a quest. Vengeance is a luxury. Yeah, because it's vengeance is personal. Retribution mm-hmm. is can be personal, Justice. but can also yeah. be on behalf of others. Yeah, yeah, great point. I I just love that that note, especially mm-hmm. from Logan. Yeah. Their journey, of course, takes a turn for the worse as we then come to the confrontation with Blacktoe. Blacktoe is a Northman that we've talked about before, of whom bowed to Bethod after his old man Yowl died in the circle facing down the feared of whom he remarks is more terrifying than Logan ever was. Seeming to almost imply that Logan worked for Bethod. That's That's been explicitly stated, hasn't it? I mean, practically, but was he maybe in a different position in a similar position to the feared that's how i understood it cool that's great i mean i i thought that was textually it's uh, asked it's not yeah it's not answered and i am asking it because the text text acts i ask jesus christ yeah yeah i get that it sound it, Mm -hmm. it seemed it seemed obvious to me that that was the case given the way it was described but i i and understand that it wasn't necessarily explicitly stated. So, I, 
totally get it on the side of the perspective of what's been going on with Blackto and the whole and like the feared and sort of the replacement. But I'm I'm curious as to what you make of sort of the submission to Bethod and sort of, sort of this larger story that we get about the way that Bethod has united everyone in in fear. I mean, the feared is one thing for sure, but Bethod has brought these clans together tenuously as we come to understand it from an earlier chapter, but it's it's fear driven. Yeah, it's fear driven and it's also not uniform. Like mm. he he doesn't truly have a unifying control over the north. There are holdouts. Yeah. There there are entire like towns that have refused to fall in line. Um so it, it's it's powerful to maintain control over a group of people via fear. And clearly he's able to wield that sort of control well, but it's Mm -hmm. not unifying in that sense. And if there's any sort of crack that will be used internally and externally to, to try to break down the control. Okay. If that makes sense. Interesting. Yeah. I mean, it, it begs, Many more questions, which I think is kind of the core of where you're trying to like probe, like where does the answer lie, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. All right. Logan, in this moment, similar to any time in Words and Whiskey, where I am left on the other foot, where I forget what you said or where you forget what I said, plays for time. Often. But eventually, time runs out. <laughs> 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 and the bloodshed begins. He neatly, Logan, neatly cleaves through his first opponent, opponent, not expecting for him to slide in half with his awful, his awful, slowly pouring out over the road. I was actually shocked. This scene is graphic, of course, as he slices, half, he like cleaves easily through the man. He's shocked at how easily this man gives to the blade. But I, I was shocked at the same time in the, there's description, but I expected a little bit more out of Joe. A little bit more brutality. I expected the intestines to slide out a little bit more if that checks out. So, yeah, you know what I mean. I could see that. I didn't. Quite, Nothing wrong with it, but I didn't quite have that feeling. I get but it. I also haven't been exposed to much, so I'm going to chalk yeah. that up to maybe some easing into the brutality. A little yeah, bit. and. Again, like this is based on, I think it's, I want to say it's George R. R. Martin's description of Akira meets Akira Kurosawa meets fantasy, which is another reason that I wanted you to watch Yojimbo, by the way, is because oft the comparison is drawn between Kurosawa and Abercrombie because they approach things from kind of similar perspectives. Okay. So, yeah, I, I just imagine, you know, as he's being sliced in half, it feels kind of Kurosawa-esque. And so... I'd almost think that you might see more than like the splatter of blood, but you might see the rest tumble out afterwards, but nothing wrong with that. Totally fine. I just imagine the rest mm-hmm. pouring out of the street as he does that. Right. Um, and the fight by and large, as it continues is, is successful and Logan survives, but eventually is pulled back in caught between black toe, his remaining men and more archers that have caught a back trap around him surrounding the trio as we've come to understand them this we've got some badasses within this within within this group but logan obviously being one of them Baez proves himself 
to have some have some great abilities. Not right away, but yeah. These guys know how to make people dead. Yeah, they definitely get it. They definitely understand. And as such, you get an impression of northern culture on the whole. Like they they understand or at the very least, if they if it's not just an understanding of the way that they need to catch people and kill them, it's an understanding of how brutal it is to deal with Logan Nine Fingers, including how hard Black Toe tries to talk him out of wielding his weapon and how long he does so. Yeah. I could I could see Black Toe being a a very cool foil within this series if you didn't just yeah. die right away. <laughs> Who's to say there aren't more? <laughs> I'm sure you know? there's more. I'm sure there's many more. As though there are more characters. But yeah, Black Toe, of course, does meet his fate. But it's at this point that Baez, the old man sitting alone on his horse, unaddressed, is asked to get off his horse. And he says he'd preferred to ride. And the thought that the man might die in an instant runs through Logan's head. But instead of him being punctured by arrows, as Logan imagines... The trees burst into an immediate inferno, as though the entire thing is consumed in mere seconds. The heat and pressure becomes oppressive. The horses freak out. Some run into the fire directly and are incinerated in seconds, which wouldn't be possible physically. But as such, they're consumed. The entirety of the archers, including their bones, are incinerated to ash and to dust. A horse charges at Logan, and he takes it out of the knees, chopping multiple times and cutting it down so that it and its rider tumble in to the fire as well, leaving only a surviving black toe with a horse collapsed on top of him, leaving him struggling for breath and yearning for death. I was expecting some sort of magical interjection from Baez, and he hit, he gave his his focuses to be fire force and will i really really genuinely expected will to be the one that he exerts in this moment i was not expecting Mm -hmm. nuclear holocaust wow (laughs) yeah (laughs) i wasn't i wasn't expecting firestorm Mm -hmm. uh in this moment it's such cool shit though it was so fucking cool (laughs) i want so badly for him to be one of our main party members going forward because he's so fucking good (laughs) this fucking old mage yeah totally get it uh there's this moment where they're chatting and after everything is concluded outside of the death of black toe which we'll get to in a moment he says there now master kwai do you see what can be achieved with proper understanding of plants (laughs) which (laughs) deeply speaks to the way that this magic system interacts with the world. Like truly understanding the world is maybe the most important function as far as we can grasp initially. Yeah. It it makes me think that those trees themselves were components as opposed to targets. Right. As though he was able to understand the entire like life cycle of a plant and incinerate it in a moment. Because he gets what the end is of a whole tree being burned to its core and then just creates that inferno. It leaves so many things to question that I, are fascinating. I took it a little bit differently. I took it as like... Totally fine. Yeah, we had the conversation about 
some plants not having any sort of medicinal usages. Mm-hmm. But presumably a Douglas fir or like cedar or what, whatever we want to call whatever these, these pine trees are, or I don't know if they're actually pine trees. I can't recall. But the, these trees that are used in this instance presumably don't have medicinal qualities, but they're, they're still useful potentially in means if they're specific to this spell or if it's just a tree. I don't know. Oh, yeah. No, I, I don't disagree with you. I'm just saying that, like, I think in composition of understanding the way that everything functions, he's also saying that, like, understanding how a tree burns is fundamentally important. And so understanding everything means that he can summon a tree burning, maybe, from imagination or from mm-hmm. art, you know? Yeah. So, yeah, I, I don't disagree with anything that you're saying. It's just an outlay of, like, there are a lot of, there's a lot of space be considered when it comes to art and what's going on here right so logan is then forced to put down black toe and in that moment he confesses that he think that he thinks that bethod is shit then he shouldn't have sided with him and in a way is proud of logan for what he did after logan begs and asks i, I begs is maybe too hard of a thing but he asks if Baez could heal him he says that he can't heal him as he hasn't specialized in that kind of art Logan settles on putting the fine man out of his misery, in which even the man claims that he's glad that it was Logan that did it in the end. I don't know if I believe Baez in this moment Hmm. entirely. Uh, I can respect the commitment to the claim of the, like, sort of siloed masteries, but um, I'm, I'm guessing at some clutch moment, Going forward, we're going to see Baez heal someone. Maybe not from dead to fully healed and like in perfect health, but he is a master a little of, bit of healing. force, yeah. will, and fire. But that doesn't mean he's unable to exert power in other realms. Over the space. Yeah, that makes sense. And, and Logan just puts the man out. He just cuts his head off and calls it a day. Yeah. <coughs> probably important. Um, like, probably the right move, even if Baez was a master healer. I think Black Toe in this situation is too much of a liability to keep alive. Yeah, without a doubt. I, I want to mention the quote, of course, that happens, the exchange that happens between Logan and Baez, which is to say, that was a good man, better than me, Logan remarks. And Baez leans down, picks up the sword, the Mastermaker sword, and replies, history is littered with dead, good men. And Logan takes the sword. Their band continues south. It's a, it's a pretty tragic but important point to keep front of mind i think that good men die that history is littered with good men that history is with good intentions well that being good isn't enough to follow through with what you what needs to be done totally definitely get that Mm mm-hmm All right, PJ, I've got one final question to kind of round this out. We used to do, we briefly had been doing a thing of like final thoughts 
And maybe I'll come with a final thought. Maybe I won't. Depends on the week. But my final thought this week for you is how are you feeling about Baez on the whole? We get a lot more clarity one way or another on the wizard, some of the historicity. You know, it's not fully clear, but there's clarity added. What do you yeah. feel about Baez? That's, that's a very hard question. It feels like his his the amount of power that he wields gives him some slack i guess it gives allows for me to believe that he'll go further i don't know i that's not the right way to describe it but like i want to like him i don't necessarily like him yet but i'm willing to put up with him because of his reputation and ability if that makes sense yeah yeah curious old man he's a very curious old man very curious indeed pj that is where we end part one of what's going on here inside of the first law so very nice how much very nice very nice how much I'm I'm so glad that you're having such a fun time. I'm <laughs> loving this breakdown of our coverage. I hope that listeners are too. I'm not going to lie to anyone here. This is the most impassioned about a series that I've felt since the very beginning of us covering Red Rising. Um, I feel like we're having excellent conversations. I feel like our last two episodes are our best two episodes, which is always a great way to feel. So, fuck, you know? That's what I made me speeches. Speeches yeah. contends. Speeches but, was really good. Yeah. I did like speeches. It was unique. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But yeah, very, very happy all around. Um, next week, just so you know, in case you aren't following along on our calendar, we are beginning part two and we are going to read from What Freedom Looks Like Through Sore Thumb. So, What Freedom Looks Like Through Sore Thumb. And PJ, this next episode marks our 50% mark in the blade itself. So, we're going to we're wow. get there. We're already getting there. We're already getting there. <laughs> Yeah. With that, if you want to support us directly, go to patreon.com forward slash words and whiskey. It's going to be your best spot to support us. We've got one simplified tier and then a sponsorship tier if you're looking to do something individual as far as an episode perspective goes. So we're very excited. Check us out there. We have many wonderful patrons that contribute to a great community in Discord and otherwise. So check it out. Mm-hmm. It's very fun. I I love... like I... I we're about to talk about social media and that is Crossen's realm because my social media is interacting with the the patrons on the discord i'm wondering if i should download threads or blue sky or whatever still haven't i'm not i'm not good at it so i don't know if it'd be useful too but i do like chatting on the patreon so on the discord you can hang out with me there yeah, that's going to be your best spot. Other than that, make sure that you check out Instagram, Words Whiskey Pod. You can visit us on our website, wordsandwhiskey.show. You also should check out one of our our sister show, and in addition to a number of other shows, but booksandbaddies.show is live right now. It is February 28th that the second episode is coming out, so next Wednesday you can check out their, their first proper episode, which is about literature friends or lit friends as we refer to it and you're going to be very excited to hear about what we think about different literature friends groups what they think and like what i'm subjected to agreeing with 
So please check it out. They're wonderful. It's a great time. We're going to have they a blast. They're, they're all wonderful, run. beautiful, amazing people. So Yes, 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 yes. I'm, Other than I'm that, make sure you leave us a five-star review. If you don't leave us a five-star review, we are going to chisel each individual tooth out of your mouth, grain by grain, layer by layer, until you've got nothing left but gum and opposite chewing teeth. <laughs> so you can't actually chew anything. You're just left sort of dryly I'm, mincing meat. I'm going to let Crossan do that one because that that's beyond my it freaks me out man i'm not gonna lie i bit into. i'm not okay with that one (laughs) i bit i I was up to dinner for work and i bit into a i pulled a muscle out and the the muscle um came out fine but a tiny piece of shell that i didn't perceive came with it and i chomped into it with my teeth and i it pierced the gum and i immediately went this fucking sucks oh my god glocta this is bad I don't oh, like this. No. I feel bad for Glockta, and I like immediately went through like a whole trauma cycle with the man um, in that moment. So I've done yeah. that with Doritos. I haven't done with Doritos with- are a worse culprit. Yeah, <laughs> Doritos no are doubt. more numerous in their transgressions Correct. against my gums. Yeah, they're not. There were only four. They're muscles. not that bad. Yeah, <sighs> and I got Dells. it. The fraud that Diablo. It, was, it got me sharp yeah. and hard and like. Not crumbly. Is yeah. Mm, I feel. Yeah. I was uh, genuinely afraid that I broke a tooth for the first time in my whole life. Mm-hmm. It was bad. With that, we'll see you next week. <laughs> see you later. <laughs> <laughs>